Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No, because I'm going to get him. edition of the Hagman Report. Today is Thursday, October 5th, 2017, and we have a great show lined up for you today. We got a number of guests and important stories that we're going to get into. I want to thank each and every one of you for joining us tonight as um, John Robertson is guest hosting, filling in for my father again tonight, who is doing some investigative work into the Las Vegas shooting, and he will have more on that later. We really aren't going to get into it right now because there's a lot of things that are ongoing behind the scenes, and um, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this. And we are going to be talking about Las Vegas tonight with a number of our guests. We have Alicia Powell coming on at 7.30. Then at 8 o'clock, James Wesley Rawls will be joining us, followed by U.S. Navy SEAL Matt Bracken in the third hour. And actually, uh, Matt Bracken wrote a book that, his, the first chapter of his book deals with a, a similar scenario to what we saw in Las Vegas, a mass shooting, and we'll have him explain about that when he comes on. Um, tonight, we're going to start in the first segment. We are going to, as I said, get to Las Vegas, but we have a number of other stories that we want to talk about that uh, are not getting enough attention that they deserve in the wake of the Las Vegas story. First, John, I'm going to bring you on. As this is uh, the second night in a row you're running with us on the show, and it's great to have you here. We do the daily show each and every day, 2 to 3 p.m. on Global Star Channel 3, as well as on Blog Talk Radio, and you can catch it on Hagman Report, but it's great to have you on Hagman Report. Well, Joe, thank you so much, and good evening, and God's blessings to everyone who has again chosen to join us this evening. We do appreciate your time uh, and your trust in us as we move forward. Through these crazy times, uh, Vegas, 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 the title of tonight's show, Lawyers, Guns, and Money. Uh, and we will be joined in the bottom half of the hour by Alicia Powell, who comes to us courtesy of our friends at WorldNet Daily. Uh, James Wesley Rawls in hour two, and Joe, I'm really excited for that one. And then, of course, yeah. <laughs> and then in hour three, we thought, why not U.S. Navy SEAL Matt Bracken? We're going to bring him in and uh, see what he's got to say. But it is certainly an honor to sit in for Doug this evening. And uh, keep Doug in your prayers. Doug is um, Doug is is mired in an investigation right now that is complex. It is scary. Uh, it has an OPSEC quality about it where those there are those of us at Team Hagman that aren't even a hundred percent aware of exactly what he's what he's working on. So prayers for Doug tonight. Joe? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of his uh, behind the scenes investigations and before um, we go any further into Las Vegas I want to touch on some of these stories that really are important stories and because of Las Vegas aren't getting the attention they deserve one three US Army Special Operations Commandos were killed in Niger Africa yesterday and it goes on to say that um, killed three were killed Wednesday when they came under hostile fire in the West African country the U.S. military said the commandos, who were Green Berets, were likely attacked by militants from Al-Qaeda 
in the Islamic region of North Africa, the North African branch of the extremist group in southwestern Niger, near the border with Mali, the AP said. Two U.S. commandos who were wounded in the attack were taken to the capital of Niamey and were in stable condition, according to the AP. The U.S.-Africa command said that the forces were a joint U.S.-Nigerian uh, patrol when they were attacked. The U.S. forces are in the country to provide training and security assistance to Niger's military in their fight against extremists. President Trump was notified of the attack Wednesday night as he traveled to Washington from Las Vegas. The White House said Trump had been meeting with the victims of the mass shooting that killed 58 people on Sunday night, along with first responders and doctors. So, um, again, U.S. personnel deployed in many places around the world. Here they are in an active mission working with local uh, security and military forces there to fight the extremism and al-Qaeda factions in Africa and three U.S. Army Special Commandos killed. Two were, two were wounded that survived, and uh, I expect to see efforts there being ramped up as um, anywhere U.S. personnel is killed around the world. It's usually met, at least under normal presidential administrations, with a heavy response. Amen to that. Uh, the key uh, to what you just said, Joe, being under normal presidential administrations, and I pray God that as we move forward with President Donald J. Trump, that we are once again the type of Americans where if you hit us, we will hit you back. And yet, at the same time, I pray to God that we will be the type of Americans who have the decency to declare war before we go to war. You know, Joe, as I listened to your comments, and uh, I was aware of this story, of course, when it broke, uh, it came, it brought to mind... Uh, a series of books I read about 10 years ago. The titles are misnomers, uh, but they were written by Robert Kaplan. That's uh, Kaplan with a K. Uh, the first was called Imperial Grunts, and the follow-up was called Hog Pilots and Blue Water Grunts. Interestingly, uh, Kaplan, the author, also wrote uh, Black Hawk Down, and oh, he wrote okay. a great uh, book that I read about the Iran hostage crisis. But back to the two books I mentioned. Uh, strange titles, granted, Imperial Grunts and Hog Pilots and Blue Water Grunts. But what it talked about, Joe and listeners, is all over the world we have special operations forces that are very small contingents, a uh, 100 personnel or less. And they're typically under the command of what's, what they call an Iron Major, uh, sometimes even a captain. And these Iron Majors uh, or these captains are in charge of uh, a company size or less, even platoon size, of special forces. They work in these forward operating bases. And what's key to understand about these mid-level officers, Joe, and I think this may be one of those situations, is that they have the type of empowerment, the type of, in- of authority, and the type of diplomatic capability to work with the, the indigenous people of the area of operation they're in. And they work all over Africa the Mongolian steppe, uh, the Siberian wilderness. I mean, they're everywhere. Uh, anyway, that's Robert Kaplan and uh, the first book, Imperial Grunts, certainly worth reading if uh, you're interested in how our spec ops community works. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully um, we will, again, see a response to this as um, there have been crackdowns in the same region from France just a few years ago. Many are saying that this was some kind of revenge attack for that. 
but hopefully we will we will see an increase in the um, amount of al-Qaeda troops that are able to function in West Africa uh, decrease. This is a story that's very interesting, and with the, again, the Las Vegas shooting has not gotten any or, or nearly a, a minuscule fraction of the attention it deserves. I, I, I didn't see this till today, and I'm pretty surprised at this. There was a church shooting, and uh, at a Nashville church in the end of September, on September 24th, I believe, I just read it here, where a man, an African-American man, walked into a church and killed one person, shot seven others, and said he did so as revenge for the Dillon Roof shootings. I'm not sure how many people heard about this. It definitely went way under my radar. And this article from the Tennessean.com says, Two people shot by a lone gunman at a Nashville church last month have been released from the hospital. A hospital spokesman said today, One other victim remains hospitalized in stable condition at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Peggy Spann, the wife of minister at Brunette Chapel Church of Christ, remains hospitalized, said Mike McPherson. The brazen September 24th shooting left one dead and seven parishioners seriously injured. And the story goes as follows. The shooter identified as Emmanuel Sampson, a 25-year-old Rutherford County man, accidentally shot himself after he was confronted. Okay, I'm sorry. I jumped ahead in the story here. A man, I, I don't have his name, which is probably in hindsight I should have got first, um, walked into this church and shot eight people, killing one, wounding seven others, including the pastor. And nowhere really did I hear uh, this story. And the shooter was identified as Emmanuel Sampson. I apologize for that. And as I said before the show, you know, anytime there's a, a shooting in a church, regardless of color or motivation here in this country, we should, uh, it's always an important story and we should hear about it. Now, I wonder what it was that let the story go under the radar because this happened days before Las Vegas. And from what I read into it just a little bit today or what I saw of it today, they made it sound like it happened on the same day, but it actually happened a week prior to the Las Vegas shooting. And we didn't really hear much about this. Uh, yeah, we did, as in we didn't hear anything about this, uh, Joe. This wasn't underreported. This was non-reported. Uh, this is from USA Today. Uh, again, Emmanuel Cadega Sampson. I just posed this question uh, to our listeners and viewers. Perhaps the perpetrator doesn't fit the convenient mainstream media narrative. Uh, I have no idea what this man's motives were, but what I do know is that as Christians we need to be in prayer big time for the uh, Burnett Chapel Church of uh, Antioch in uh, in Nashville. Yeah, absolutely. And um, again, the the shooter cited he, apparently he left a note in his car and the reporting is not clear as it even says in its article here it's not clear what Samson who is black is alleged to have written about the roof shooting or whether his note contained other details and might also speak to a motivation or state of mind Metro Nashville police have not commented on the note and uh, we just got an email here uh, I want to make sure I get this right. According to a listener of the show, that this was 
potentially a Somali refugee. Okay, that uh, they heard it was a Somali refugee. And that's pretty interesting. And a week before the Las Vegas shooting took place, so this was definitely way underreported, a way underreported story. Because um, as you said, it doesn't fit the narrative. So It doesn't fit the narrative. Uh, Andrew Nels, uh, writing for the Tennessean, now I am sourcing this from the USA Today, usatoday.com. Uh, it says, AP reporters did not view the note, but it was summarized in an investigative report uh, circulating among law enforcement. It, quote, in sum and in no way verbatim, the note referenced revenge or retaliation for Dylan Roof, the white supremacist who killed nine black worshipers uh, at South Carolina Church in 2015 and has, sen- and has since been sentenced, <laughs> a little bit of a tongue twister there, has since been sentenced to death. Uh, the report did not cite what precisely Samson is alleged to have written about the roof shooting or whether his note contained other important details that might also speak to the motivation, uh, state of mind uh, behind his recent crime. Joe, I'm afraid what this comes down to is an issue of uh, of uh, black black and white crime. Revenge and, and race. Yeah. And I'm if afraid he, so. If he was a, a refugee... Um, that just adds, you know, another, you know, we, we, when we break down these shootings and, and events, um, there are a number of things that we look at and the motivation, you know, seeing that this was somebody from, um, Somalia who was a refugee and also left a note that was, um, critical of the Dylan Roof shooting. It's definitely, uh, politically motivated here. And I wonder if this is something he came up with on his own or if it was talked about in a group of people and he just decided to take action. But with everything that's going on, um, it'll probably take a lot of digging, and I doubt we'll get much more information. I'm going to go back and look through this story because, obviously, almost two weeks' worth of, of news has passed by since this happened. So there should be a substantial amount of information out there um, that we can gather on this case. Moving forward, I wanted to make sure we hit this case. We have... Um, an interesting story out of Pennsylvania and a congressman named Tim Murphy. Now, apparently Tim Murphy was a big pro-life supporter and he sent a resignation letter saying he would resign on October 21st to House Speaker Paul Ryan in a statement uh, that Paul Ryan uh, said this afternoon. This afternoon I received a letter of resignation from Congressman Tim Murphy effective October 21st. It was Dr. Murphy's decision to move on to the next chapter of his life, and I support it. We thank him for his many years of tireless work on mental health issues here in Congress and his service as a Naval Reserve officer. Here's the interesting part. Why did Murphy resign? Well, apparently he had a an affair with a woman, and he went on to tell her and, and uh, make her have an abortion or he told he needed to have an abortion. And it's interesting because he built much of his career in Congress on public pro-life stance. But according to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, Murphy acted entirely differently in private. You have zero issue posting your pro-life stance all over the place when you had no issue asking me to abort your unborn child just last week when we thought that was one of the options, wrote Shannon Edwards, a forensic a psychologist with whom Murphy was having an extramarital affair. Oops. Uh, so what we have here is uh, the good Congressman Murphy 
representative from Pennsylvania got caught. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting, um, I, I heard today on the way in that he was not going to resign, but must have had a change of heart after issuing the resignation letter, and Paul Ryan announced it today. Uh, you talk about hypocrisy in politics, and this guy being so, you know, was he was he pro-life for uh, political purposes? Was it something he really believed in? I have a hard time uh, saying that he would really believe in it if he asked a uh, mistress to have an abortion, or if anybody he got pregnant with one of his kids he asked to abort. It just doesn't compute with somebody who actually is pro-life. And I would uh, venture to say that he took this stance on at one point as a, a political stance, just choosing sides of the aisle or trying to stay along party lines, but never really cared that much about the issue, um, to be emphatic about it one way or the other. At least that what, that's what we see from his words and his behavior. Well, it, it, Scripture tells us that we will be known by the fruits, by our fruits, by the fruits of our labor. Uh, and in the case of Congressman Murphy, uh, let's extrapolate this out a little bit, Joe. I mean, it is, is what he purportedly suggested to his mistress uh, any different than if he suggested to his mistress that they murder her rich uncle uh, for his life insurance policy? I mean, you are either pro-life or you are pro-death. That's what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it, it, and I think most of our listeners agree. It is not a Monday, Wednesday, Friday kind of thing. You either believe that, that life begins at conception and that that is a defenseless unborn child developing in the mother's womb, or you are under the satanic delusion that about half of our country exists under, and you do not believe that to be the case. And, uh, you know, I frankly have zero empathy for Congressman Murphy. Uh, he was having an extramarital affair. And, and you know, I, I don't want to preach here too much, but I used to see this a lot in, uh, in L.A., in Hollywood. It, 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 it never ceased to amaze me, the men that I would work with, who, through their flirtatious behavior and, 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 and the way that they would treat uh, members of the opposite sex on set, uh, they seemed very willing to compromise everything, literally, Joe, everything that they had worked for over 20, 30 years. Uh, guys, you mess around on your wife, you could lose everything. Mm-hmm. You can lose everything. You could lose your marriage, your house, your kids, your faith, everything. I'm sorry, Congressman Murphy. Was it worth it? By the way, this his resignation. Excuse me, his resignation ends his reign serving Pennsylvania's 18th district since 2003. Hit us up at uh, studio at hagmanandhagman.com. 2003. Is it? Isn't it time for term limits, Joe? I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, that's 14 out. years. Um, back to the story of the church shooting. And, and J.K., I want to thank you for sending the clarification. Deadly Tennessee church shooting. Sudanese immigrant arrested. FBI launches civil rights investigation. Um, this article has a little bit more information. The man identified as 25-year-old Emmanuel Sampson was an immigrant from uh, Sudan, and he they say he has been here for two decades, and he's suspected of bringing two pistols and a mask to the predominantly white Brunette Chapel Church of Christ in Antioch, southeast of Nashville, before opening fire. 
and the Metropolitan Nashville Police Department tweeted that Samson had been released from the hospital and will be charged with the, with murder and attempted murder. And he um, went on social media. Um, photos from a Facebook page under Samson's name seem to show him lifting weights and showing off his physique. A post earlier Sunday read everything you've ever doubted or make to believe as false as real and vice versa. Um, and he made some other uh, interesting social media uh, statements. And apparently he shot himself. That's why he was in the hospital. That's why I, I had a problem with that other report. It didn't clarify that. So what, So he missed? <laughs> well, no, he killed, some, he killed one person and, and shot seven others, but apparently shot himself in the foot if I... Um, <laughs> well, it's, not, it's unclear whether he shot himself or the gun unintentionally discharged during his scuffle with Angle, who was the man who approached him. Well, either way, I hope we, that shot in the foot hurt good and proper. Uh, Joe, let's switch gears. Uh, we covered something on the Hagman Daily Show today that I think we'd be remiss if we didn't touch on here tonight. And that is, uh, we're, we're starting to put the pieces of the whole Vegas puzzle together enough, uh, Joe, that we're being able to begin to follow the money uh, to a degree. Uh, Joe, you brought a piece on the Hagman Daily Show today about uh, all of the stock in MGM that was sold right before this tragedy. By the way, MGM owns Mandalay Bay, uh, the casino, of course, uh, from the 32nd floor that the perpetrator Paddock uh, shot and killed 59 people. But Joe, what is going on with uh, uh, the? We, we saw this happen before 9/11 with both the airlines as well as the World Trade Center. How do these guys know to sell short right before these things uh, uh, happen? <laughs> okay, there's um, a few interesting stories, um, and apparently, from what I can see. There was a number of, there was at least two separate occasions where this guy sold uh, a number of shares, one in September, one in end of July, August. But the latest one in September uh, was he sold almost 300,000 shares of his MGM uh, resort. Casino stocks fall, led by Mandalay Bay owner MGM after Las Vegas shooting and we know that after this shooting that there were uh, a number of casinos, casino stocks that fell uh, after the, the massacre on Sunday. And MGM Resorts International, as you said, John, owns Mandalay Bay and hotel. the hotel uh, also Wynn Resorts slipped in Las Vegas Sands. They all fell uh, anywhere from 1% to 6% on Monday after the market opened. And a number of MGM shares were sold just prior to the shooting. Now, we've seen, um, as you said on 9-11, you know, Larry Sil- from Larry Silverstein and, and the insurance to, um, Michael Chertoff, the Christmas Day bomber owning, uh, you know, a portion of the company Rapiscan that was so conveniently implemented at all U.S. airports after the attempted, uh, shoe bombing and all the inconsistencies with that story. We kind of revisited that today on, on our show. And now you have this where the, um, and I read, I haven't confirmed this yet, but also a Saudi Arabia, uh, owner, a major owner of the casino also sold, uh, shares of the stock as well as this James Murren, uh, who is the CEO sold a number of shares, but there could be a, a hundred reasons why these people sold the shares other than some kind of foreknowledge of the shooting, or it could be exactly that. It's not something that we really, unless you can prove 
that information was given, you know, from point A to point B. It's not something that you can really make an issue of. It's just very interesting to note the behavior of some of these people. Well, and to also note the dollar signs. Uh, I don't know at what point, Joe, the uh, SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, gets involved, but one of these uh, pre-shooting, uh, you know, it's not fair for me to say that, one of these uh, sales, these transactions that occurred prior to the crime in Vegas uh, was for $10.24 million. That's quite a bit of money, and I would tend to think that $10 million would raise some eyebrows, would it not? Well, you know, when you, yeah, and you're right, the um, MGM Resorts International, uh, Maureen sold almost 260,000 shares of the business's stock in a transaction on Thursday, September 7th. The stock was sold at an average price of 34.19 for a total value of 8.8 plus million dollars. The chief executive officer now owns 71,000 shares. So he sold, he sold off, um, almost 75 to 80% of his holdings. And this, but this is not the first time he's done this. He has also, uh, both on July 31st and on August 9th, as well as September 8th, sold off shares of the stock. Both the other two times there were over 50,000 shares. So either this guy is really hard up for money, <laughs> which I find hard to believe, <laughs> or he's doing something, you know, that, uh, trying to, to move money around to start. I mean, there could be a million reasons why to do this, but it looks like he was at least during the summer on three separate occasions, uh, in, you know, July, August, and September sold us a significant amount of stock, yeah. leaving him with almost virtually none left. Yeah, the lion's, the lion's share. Joe, just quickly, uh, you mentioned Michael Chertoff, of course, former head of, uh, Department of Homeland Security. And we have a guest who has agreed to join us here in the next two weeks. Her name is Stephanie Sledge. She is the editor-in-chief and founder of a, a new blog that I've enjoyed, uh, thegovernmentrag.com. Uh, the Government Rag? The Government okay. com. Stephanie Sledge. And she's got some great investigative pieces on Chertoff, the money, the body scanners, and really, ultimately, the loss of our liberty. All right. We are up against our break. When we come back, we're going to be joined by WorldNet Daily journalist and investigative reporter Alicia Powell. She'll be with us for the next segment. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to this edition of the Hagman Report. Visit HagmanReport.com for the news and articles that matter most. Stay tuned. We will be right back. In a thrilling series of novels, T.C. Joseph takes us into the lives of three families who struggle to maintain normal lives in a world where conspiracy theory and Bible prophecy collide. T.C. Joseph's viewpoint of alternative history and understanding of prophetic events will change your view of the world and the events on our horizon. 
Kirkus Review states, Readers of End Times Fiction will be hard-pressed to find it done more intriguingly than this. Extremely readable and fast-paced, Blue Week Reviews boldly states, Fans of Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series and Tom Parada's The Leftovers will find this thought-provoking series absolutely riveting. Order your copies of T.C. Joseph's This Generation series from Amazon.com. Book 1, Precipice. Book 2, Pentecost. And Book 3, Penance. Uncertain times, it makes sense to have a sustainable backup method to cook food and boil water. If your current plan includes using a fuel burning stove or cooking over an open fire, then there's a much better way. The Miniman Rocket Stove is a biomass burning cooking stove that only requires small quantities of sticks and twigs for fuel. The Miniman Stove is easy to use, smokeless, portable, powerful, and sustainable. For the finest in survival cooking stoves and fire starters made right here in the USA, go to MinutemanStove.com. That's MinutemanStove.com. You may never look at your city, town, or its people the same way ever again. Stained by Blood, a murder investigation based upon a true story by private investigator Douglas J. Hagman. Using the character Mark Stiles, Hagman takes you on a journey behind the scenes where the homicide becomes a secondary to an underworld of satanic ritual abuse, child abduction, and even mind-controlled experimentation. A world dismissed as conspiracy by those who want to keep its secrets hidden. Exposing the dangers, denials, and deceptions. For five years, a brutal killer remained on the loose, free to kill again. As Mark struggles to navigate the maze of bizarre twists and untangle a web of deeply hidden secrets kept by some of the most powerful and influential people in this community and beyond. Stained by Blood. Order your copy of this engaging novel today at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stained by Blood. Ladies and gentlemen, to our second segment on this Thursday edition of the Hagman Report, Alicia Powell, investigative journalist at WorldNet Daily, will be joining us shortly, and we're going to be getting into a number of issues with her. And we have uh, again James Wesley Rawls and Matt Bracken for hours two. Uh, James Wesley Rawls on hours two, and Matt Bracken on hour three. And we're going to deal with some of the logistics and whatnot from uh, with their expertise from uh, Las Vegas. But we were just talking here during the break about the windows at the hotel there that were smashed out and in one of the photos you can see a small uh, sledgehammer is maybe six inch handle and, and a sledgehammer uh, top there that were used to bust out the windows and reading today I read that the windows were six or eight hundred pound hurricane proof windows and we were talking about you know how that how functional that would be to you know shoot it out versus, versus having to, to uh, use some kind of tool to smash the windows out now it's obvious from the photos that it wasn't done with any type of precision that there was obviously some kind of smashing that was done as you can see the uh, very odd shape in which they broke as glass usually does but John you were talking about dealing with with the tempered glass with windows that were uh, real big like that and you know uh, I was it's almost it almost makes you wonder if it was tested out somewhere first or um, 
if you had to figure out exactly what you needed to break those windows. Or if you could just get a regular hammer and, you know, go up there and, and just keep hitting them until they they bust out. I don't know. Well, I, I, I mean, mean, this uh, guy methodically planned it out so much, you'd think that there would have, he would have a rhyme and a reason for everything he did. <laughs> Here's an experiment you can try at home. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> take a uh, standard 24-ounce framing hammer and uh, hit your car windshield a few times with it. And it's going to take a good two, three blows to get through just that little quarter-inch a piece of tempered glass with a 25-ounce hammer. Let's call it a six-pound hand maul. Do you think those are shatterproof, like uh, in the hotels? Well, the way, well, temper, part of tempered glass is, is, there's no quick way to explain it, but basically it's layered and it, right. has, it has sheets of a plastic material okay. that keeps the glass homogenous. It keeps it cohesive. So were you to put, for example, several rounds of rifle ammo through the the tempered glass, essentially what you would get is a spider effect, some clouding, and then just basically the the the, the hole would be the diameter of the caliber of the projectile, pretty much. And I'll tell you, you know, uh, you got to give this creep paddock credit. Uh, it it takes some guts to stand on the thirty second floor and start swinging a little mini hand maul sledge. Uh, at a window that's essentially a wall about 300 feet above the concrete. Uh, but anyway. Yeah. And we're going to get into, uh, again, <laughs> in hours two and three, we're going to get into more of this later because apparently there was an elaborate escape route planned, which according to reports couldn't even have been carried out by him alone. So we're going to look at that more later. We have with us investigative journalist Alicia Powell, and she has uh, been a frequent guest on our show, a great investigative reporter with WorldNet Daily. She's written for numerous outlets. She's got an extensive uh, uh, work history. Alicia, welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks for having me again. I apologize. I have a brand-new computer that's about two days old, and I've had trouble downloading Skype. So I am talking to you from my iPhone. Okay. Well, we can work with that, and it's great to have you. Thanks. Nice to be back. Alicia, welcome to the show. You know, uh, Alicia and I had an opportunity to speak offline uh, this morning and, and hadn't, uh, had an opportunity to, to talk about the news too much for several weeks. And I said to her, you know, it'd be so fun to work with you on air at some point. And guess what? We got to do that exact thing tonight. Uh, um, synchronicity. <laughs> there you go. Uh, well, we love our friends over at WorldNet Daily and Alicia Powell has been such a blessing to the Hagman Report over the past six, eight months. She always brings in a fresh perspective. She's young. She's aggressive. She's working in D.C. She's she's in the Beltway. She's on Capitol Hill, and she's fearless. So, Alicia, what's going on? What's at the top of your radar tonight? I mean, we've all been kind of horrified and inundated with all the details of the uh, Las Vegas shooting, as we discussed earlier, John, earlier today. And the, 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 the first thing that came to my mind when the shooting happened is, what drugs was this guy on? Because all of these mass shooters, they have, most of them have been prescribed some kind of pharmaceutical drugs. And um, so it turns out he was on Valium, or what's known as diazepam. That's not really, um, it's, it's, a, it's a drug that's kind of used uh, by lots of people, uh, and it's not going to have uh, too much kind of homicidal, uh, cause too much homicidal ideation or suicidal ideation. So I'm not going to attribute this drug to what he did. But he was, in fact, on pharmaceutical, uh, on um, some kind of psychotropic drug, and that's just another variable, another clue to try to figure out what this guy's motive was. Three days later, we still don't know what his motive was. Was he 
a member of ISIS or trying to be a jihadist? Was he, uh, you know, out to shoot Trump supporters considering it was uh, people who were going to a country music concert that he attacked? Um, it's just overwhelming. And this, this mass shooting, it's just an epidemic. And it's not the guns, because we've seen terrorists use hammers and, and, and uh, or, you know, with their attacks. So the fact that Democrats uh, are immediately calling for gun control like they always do during these mass shootings is probably fueling more conspiracy theory that this was actually a setup uh, for gun controls, uh, Democrats to push gun control. That's what I've been seeing around and you know we've got to stay away from the conspiracy theories and wait for the facts but we still don't know I think we're all exhausted and we're eager to find out what was exactly behind this guy Paddock's motives his intent yeah Alicia we've seen a, a lot of information about this guy but none of it really relevant to uh, adding up to a, to a motive as you said and and the you know the volume um it, it's interesting to note i agree with you but i don't think it's a it's a deciding factor since apparently this been this guy's been um they say his behavior's been off for a number of months but he only just started taking it a few months ago and there are a number of other uh the guy had a bunch of money very secretive very private node a little social media footprint we're still trying to figure out if that if those were scrubbed before they were even uh, uh before this or or as this event unfolded there's a lot more questions than we have answers today, and I think uh, the lack of motive, the lack of understanding, and the uh, nature of the attack was so horrific that that this is going to stay on people's minds for a while, specifically until we find out an answer to a lot of the questions as to the reasons why it happened. Right. I mean, you know, I'll just say he did take Valium, about he started taking it in June 2016, um, so he's taken it for a while. He's taken it for a while, but it really is just delving into what creates a serial killer. There's just another aspect of it. They all have these these pharmaceutical medications, and you can say that it's just Valium, but different drugs have different effects on different people, and perhaps you become more inclined towards, you know, gravitated towards. Uh, evil when you are just not fully alert mentally. Uh, yeah. So. Well, it could very well be. You know, Alicia, yeah. you 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 chose an interesting verbiage there, gravitating toward evil, and that's something that unfortunately, the, obviously, the mainstream media is not going to cover this, and and that's why we encourage our listeners and viewers to to obviously engage with us every evening here at the Hagman Report, but also go to WorldNetDaily, WND.com, and really bookmark the site because uh, writers like Alicia and her uh, her counterparts at WorldNetDaily uh, do look at situations like this from that type of perspective. And what happened is this, this is clearly a situation where, for whatever reason, whether this man was just a gambling addict taking Valium who decided he wanted to shoot a bunch of Trump supporters and country western fans, or whether he was on the 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 extreme polarity, a CIA cutout who was built through MK Ultra from birth to con- to commit this crime. Either way, something grab made this man gravitate toward evil. Uh, Satan won this round. Right, and I think it's just insane that 
the Democrats just immediately go for gun control. They don't want to talk about radical Islamic extremism. They don't want to talk about mental illness or how the pharmaceutical industry is corrupt. And all of those are variables that need to be examined when we're trying to, you know, end this epidemic of mass shootings that we've seen become, you know, it's happening more and more. Maybe not 35, 50 people getting killed, but on a regular basis, someone takes a firearm or a weapon and just goes out and does some horrendous acts. Um, I think the website, it's documented very well on the web of these, well, that, that's the angle I've been looking at. The pharmaceutical, uh, the, the mass shooters who have basically ended up in terrible predicaments after taking medications. Um, what's Paddock's motive? We don't know. But that's something that we shouldn't cross off when it comes to these mass shootings. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. And, um, you know, again, the, the amount of damage that this man was able to um, unleash in just a very short amount of time. There are still, uh, there's some great articles asking, um, important questions on Zero Hedge, on John Rappaport's no more fake news.com that I read today that, that really sum it up. And as you said, the, the conspiracy theories, you know, um, people will like to say that, you know, this didn't happen. It wasn't a real event, uh, to any variation of, uh, you know, more than one shooters and, and it was, uh, you know, there were crisis actors. But everything that I've seen tells me that this was a real event. Now, how many people, uh, John Rappaport has a great piece out that details how you, uh, this man, even with precision accuracy, couldn't have fired, you know, 575 accurate hit shots within the 10 minutes that he had to shoot. But all this evidence will continue to be looked at. Um, and I want to ask you this, Alicia. Do you believe that there is, uh, some kind of tension or, uh, something going on between the Las Vegas Sheriff's Department and the FBI? Perhaps. I mean, I haven't followed every detail of the case. I've been writing about other things because lots of things fall under the radar when the nation's intention is, uh, attention is just focused on the shooter and the, the, the mass shooting. But I don't know. Perhaps. Okay. Well, Alicia, what, what else have, have you been writing about? What else has been on your radar? Well, uh, the House, I believe yesterday, passed a bill that's going to ban abortions after 20 weeks. And uh, the Democrats, as usual, are saying, well, you're taking away a, woman, a woman's right of reproductive rights, mm-hmm. and you're implying that women are not um, you know, smart enough to make the proper decisions about their body. And it's just like, no. And, then, and Republicans, they want to take away a woman's right to abortion. Well... After 20 weeks, you know, you're six months pregnant, you still want to have an abortion. I, I, it just, it's, it's also more insanity from the left. And, um, this is a debate I've been having with, uh, people, leftists for years, I guess a decade, about how Republicans want to, you know, you just go to the, the, the women's march and those people wearing their pink hats. And that's all that they talk about. You know, Trump wants to grab him by the ooha, and he wants to take away abortion rights. Well, no, it's late-term abortions, partial birth abortions, and it should be restricted. So the House passed this bill yesterday, and it'll, we'll see where it goes. It's the first step in uh, in putting an end to late-term abortions, which I think 66% of the nation, according to Queenie Akpole, 
agrees with ending late-term abortion. There's really just no excuse. And the bill, you know, makes exceptions for people who are victims of rape or incest or if it's going to save the life of a mother. Well, and Alicia, we know that, with all due respect to these statistics, that those statistics are so minuscule as to almost be not even noteworthy per se. I mean the victims of incest, rape, et cetera. Yes, they do occur, but when you look at them on a national spectrum, it's so minuscule as to almost not even warrant a talking point in Congress. Now, we also know that when we talk about late-term abortion, forgive me, I'm going to tell a quick story here. About five years ago, I was running a crew at Disney, and one of the guys on my crew, his wife was pregnant, and they'd been married about a year, and he was super excited. And he asked if he could get off early the following day because she was going to have her first sonogram. And I was excited for him, and I was like, absolutely. So, you know, he took off early that day. The very next morning, Alicia, he came in all aglow. He looked like a little kid. His face was all radiant. He goes, John, John, come here. You've got to hear this. You've got to hear this. He pulled out his iPhone, probably like an iPhone 4 back then, and he played for me at 30 days the beating of the baby's heart. And what it sounded like was swishing water back and forth. But, Alicia, we now have the technology to hear a beating heart at 30 days. I believe there was a video that went viral, I think, sometime last year, where you see a baby that's about a few months old in the womb clapping its hands to music. I think a baby at six months old is about the size of a cantaloupe. It can scratch. It's developing. And, you know, at what point do you – we saw Hillary Clinton say on the debate stage during the election that it's okay to abort babies at nine months. You can go nine months along and have an abortion. So, I mean, it's just incredible. And good. We see the GOP making progress on some issues, some promises that they've made over the years after we saw Planned Parenthood admit on hidden camera that they sell aborted baby parts. And we saw Kermit Gosnell, you know, using – killing babies that are eight, nine months – you know, fetuses that are eight, nine months old by snipping their spinal cords. I mean, it's just – why are people proponents of this? You're either blind followers or you have some kind of malice, evil in your heart. Seems that phrase again, evil. There is a war between good and evil going on. No, Alicia, you're you're very right. And we uh, – I'm not sure how much you've covered this, but we were talking about in the first segment the Pennsylvania Congressman Tim Murphy, who was a uh, pro-life guy for his 14 years in Congress. And then he had an affair with his mistress who got pregnant, and he asked her to have an abortion. Well, she turned around and uh, put it out there on social media – that this guy right now he's had to resign. I believe I saw yeah. that earlier today. Yeah, he's going to be resigning uh, October 21st. Um, and my question is, you know, was this guy taking up a pro-life position, uh, part of the party politics, or just as a political stance? Because obviously this is not what he really believed in in his heart. Otherwise, he would have never asked his mistress to have an abortion. So we. You know. Well, I mean, I think we can see pretty clearly that a lot of the. Uh, Republican lawmakers we elect are not fulfilling, they're not true to their word. 
We've seen this. <laughs> We've just seen the Russia probe, for example, or, um, you know, they're just letting President Trump, the Democrats, get away with trying to impeach the president over lies that he rigged the election with Donald, uh, he rigged the election with Russia. While simultaneously, the Democrat, uh, the DNC rigged the primaries against Bernie Sanders, and no one talks about it. And all the other corruption that was revealed through the emails with the leaks released during the election. They just get away with it. Um, so, you know, back to your point, it's not surprising that people are hypocrites in Washington and they say whatever they need to say to get elected. And I think um, that's why a lot of Americans have faith in Donald Trump that he might have, he might speak, you know, off the cuff and he's not tailored, but he seems like someone who's going to keep his word. And speaking of keeping his word, we have the first uh, implementation of the GOP or a Senate committee, a House committee passed uh, legislation today that's going to start the construction of the wall. $10 billion was um, agreed upon by the House a House committee to start building the wall. Did, did they build a prototype, do you know? And I believe there's like six different prototypes that are being uh, constructed this week for the wall. Okay, interesting. So I, I did read about exciting. that today. Yeah, that's what one of the things I covered today. Um, and you can check it out at WND.com. I don't know if the article's up yet. Okay. Absolutely. We want to, we want to encourage all of our listeners and viewers to, to really visit WND.com every day. Uh, Joe, Joe and I use it for our show prep for the Hagman Daily Show pretty much every day. And, uh, and again, it's such a pleasure to work with people like Alicia Powell. Alicia, I want to ask you a question um, from your personal point of view. Uh, you're a writer, you're an investigative journalist, and you're working in the Beltway every day. Um, aside from the the symbolism of the wall and a campaign promise kept, which I think is very, very important, I think it's crucial in President Trump's first year that he get either the wall done or the taxes done or Obamacare taken care of. He's, he's got to bring one of those three in. But in your opinion, Alicia Powell, do you think that the wall is really going to really curb illegal immigration, or do you think it's more symbolic? I think both. Okay, first of all, Donald Trump's rhetoric over the last year has already curbed illegal immigrants. People don't want to cross that border after they've heard Americans chant, you know, build the wall, and Donald Trump has taken this hardline stance against illegal immigration since day one of his campaign. So I believe number data shows that less legals are are attempting to cross the border. But, of course, a physical barrier on the border is going to make it a lot more difficult for people to come across. Or they had to dig a tunnel underneath that wall or, you know. So I think it's symbolic. And that that symbolism, you know, needs to be – that symbolism is important. But, uh, I mean, just practically, who's going to – Try to hop a wall. You know, you see them hopping over the fence. There's so many videos of illegal immigrants hopping over this big gate. Um, well, let them try to hop over this big, beautiful wall. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely going to stop illegal immigrants. It's going to uh, curtail illegal immigration. Yeah. No, and we've seen, you know, the the 
uh, partial fences where they, they cut holes in or, or dig underneath it. As long as there are other layers of security measures, um, as well as, you know, this wall, it should be pretty effective in, you know, a lot of the drug smuggling and uh, people smuggling that happens on the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, do we know where the funding for this wall is coming from yet? Well, unfortunately, it's not coming from Mexico yet. It's going to come from taxpayer dollars, and that's what Democrats are charging the president with deception because the money's going to come from the taxpayer dollar and not Mexico. Um, but I say it's progress. We have to start somewhere. And, and obviously Republicans are not making it easy and Democrats are not making it easy and nothing's getting done. And months and months are going, it, it, it are going along and everything's getting stalled, like you said, from Obamacare to, you know, ending taxpayer funding for abortion to just everything that Trump's campaigned on. He's really having to struggle his way through to get anything done. you got to start somewhere. Okay, Obamacare repeal might not be perfect, but at least it's a start. Mm-hmm. No one wants to agree on it because it's not perfect. Well, it would have end taxpayer funding of Planned Parenthood. Um, it's a start. And that seems to be the way things have to get done. You've got to at least make one crack in the wall, in the room of darkness, for light to come in. And, um, well, it's hopeful today. We see it this week, as a matter of fact. You know, despite the mass shooting that's kind of in the front of all of our minds, the there are uh, steps that are being taken that are going to implement the campaign promises that Trump made, which is why we elected him. Yeah, and with all the uh, taxpayer dollars in the billions and trillions that are that are thrown away and, and wasted by our, our bloated government, um, it'll be interesting to see the response of something that uh, many of his base actually want to be implemented and the use of taxpayer dollars for that. I don't think any one of his supporters who does pay taxes will mind seeing their tax dollars going to something that actually is going to function to serve the uh, better the national security interest. And right, our taxpayer dollars are going towards pork spending all the time. Mm-hmm. I believe just a week ago I wrote about how uh, the National Institute of Health is using our taxpayer dollars to uh, study how, why transgenders are stressed out. Or they, there's, there's lots of uh, information about how our taxpayer dollars are being wasted. They're going to be taken out of our paychecks or you know, our income anyway. Let it go towards that wall because yeah. illegal immigration is ultimately... Uh, detrimental to the economy, as data also shows. Alicia, why why are transgenders stressed out? Good question. Any ideas? <laughs> I don't want to be politically incorrect, but I think you're going to have a hard time struggling to be in the other sex's body and uh, wanting everyone to to fool everyone into thinking that's <laughs> that you're born in the wrong body, because uh, that's a lot to say about that. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes we've got to sometimes we've got to take these matters and and lighten them up and laugh a little bit, you know. Uh, seriously, laugh to keep from crying. Yeah, I agree. Well, we um, only, we only got a, about a minute and a half left, Alicia. Uh, anything that we didn't touch on today that um, you've been checking out behind the scenes that you want to get into? Uh, example, you mentioned the Russia Facebook. Pro- Facebook. Okay, let's go there. Facebook. So we talk about uh, the Democrats rigging the election against Bernie Sanders. And Trump rigged the election with Russia by hacking DNC emails. Well, what about the fact that Facebook right now is being investigated by the FBI and, and Special Counsel Mueller because they 
well, not only ran Russian ads during the election, Russian ads that were actually more left-leaning, were actually more promoting a Democratic candidate or liberal issues. That's what the information shows about the Russian ads so far, not that they were helping Donald Trump. But also, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange leaked emails last week, which show Mark Zuckerberg and other Facebook CEO executives were strategizing and collaborating with John Podesta and other members of the Clinton campaign so they could secure a Democratic win in the 2016 election. And we already see, we're really seeing a censorship. As much as we have so much information in the world, so much access to information, Facebook is censoring conservatives. Google's been censoring conservatives. YouTube is censoring the conservative viewpoint. And we need to break up these monopolies somehow. No, you're absolutely right. Alicia Powell, thank you so much for joining us again today. A great segment, a lot of great stuff, and we look forward to having you back on in the near future. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Alicia, thank you so much. Folks, go to worldnetdailywnd.com, where Alicia posts pretty much every day. Absolutely. We'll be right back after this. Don't go anywhere. Greenovative. Go to HagmanReport.com. Click on the link to Greenovative. What Greenovative is, it's a small company in Florida. They created something called the GMAG Power Cell. It produces electricity by adding salt water to this unit that recharges rechargeable batteries. It's the coolest thing you'll ever see in your life. It's really neat. Really a, a super device. All right, You need just two teaspoons of ordinary table salt, a little water, but a bang, you're charging your rechargeable batteries. Super GMAG chargeable is affordable. It's lightweight, weighs about 8 ounces. It's durable. It's EMP proof. And it's environmentally friendly. Yeah, that it is. It'll provide safe and convenient power for recharging uh, 6 AA batteries off the grid. When other power sources aren't available anywhere, anytime, in any weather, day or night, go to greenovative.com. That's greenovative.com. Folks, in these uncertain times, it just makes sense to have a sustainable backup method for accomplishing one of life's most important tasks, and that's preparing food. This is the way to go. There is nothing better than a Minuteman rocket stove from MinutemanStove.com. We all need a way to cook and a method to process water. I mean, think about it. Think about the many things that could happen to you. Minuteman rocket stove can provide your family or group the perfect solution. It's a small, lightweight, wood-burning, and every bit as powerful as a kitchen stove. It's smoke fully self-contained for clean storage and transport. Because it's so efficient, it cuts down on your wood gathering and processing chores to a tenth what would be required if cooking the old-fashioned way over an open fire. So don't rely on gas or fuel stoves. Prepare your family. Prepare for yourself. Order a Minuteman rocket stove today. It's going to make bad times much better. Folks, MinutemanStove.com. MinutemanStove.com. Need I say more? You should have a Minuteman, the survival stove in an M.O.K. For investors, timberland has become the symbol of safety. Global tropical timber demand continues to surge as the world's population increases. The need for managed, sustainable timber production forests has never been greater. When stock markets crash... 
Trees keep growing. Direct ownership of fully managed tropical timberland acreage is now available to accredited investors. Prime, valuable hardwood groves close to the beautiful Costa Rican border generate and maintain superior long-term wealth. Consider visiting our forest plantations. Qualified accredited investors should go to PreciousTimberProfits.com or dial 855-888-6288 for more information. Call 855-888-6288 or visit PreciousTimberProfits.com. This announcement does not constitute either an offer to sell securities or a solicitation of an offer to purchase. Offering made by prospectus only. 855-888-6288, PreciousTimberProfits.com. PreciousTimberProfits.com. Hour number two of this Thursday edition of the Hagman Report. We are joined by our guest, James Wesley Rawls, and it's great to have him back. He's an internationally recognized authority on family disaster preparedness and survivalism. His website is survivalblog.com. It's a very popular survival blog on the Internet, and it was one of the first on the Internet as well. Uh, Mr. Rawls, welcome back to the Hagman Report. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. There's... um, so much in the news uh, right now, and uh, we didn't get a chance to really coordinate before the show, so I'm going to just kind of throw this out at you. Um, where, where do you want to start tonight? Well, I, I guess all eyes are still on Las Vegas, yeah. and folks are really wondering about Stephen Paddock and his motivations, his what connections he might have, and um, really the, the agenda behind the events. Well, what's, um, you know, I, I've said this for the last two days that we see an abundance of information about Stephen Paddock out there, but not a lot of it really relevant to uh, a motive or what would, uh, what is the cause or reason that he carried out these acts. We've learned, um, you know, that he was a very, um, reclusive type person, at least in his home and domestic life, and also that he liked the casinos and liked the gamble. He was a, a wealthy man. But not much, I mean, and, and a little bit of work history, but not much about what led him to uh, carry out the, you know, the biggest mass shooting in American history. And uh, do you have any thoughts on this? What, what might have driven him? Have you seen anything that sparks your uh, interest? Sure. There's a, a several things that come to mind immediately. A first and foremost is he is a private pilot who owns two airplanes, mm-hmm. and. All of my life experience in dealing with uh, private pilots is that once someone gets a general aviation license, they tend to gear their lives and build their mindset around general aviation. And for someone who had that extensive a background in aviation, and such a limited background in firearms, I'm really surprised that if he decided in a meticulous, pre-planned way to carry out this attack, why he didn't do it with with an aircraft he already owned or an aircraft uh, that he could transition to, whether he could rent it or buy it. The man was a millionaire. He could have bought himself um, a fairly large... uh, 
twin engine plane, something like on the order of a Beechcraft Super King Air or maybe even something even larger. And even if he had not laden that aircraft with extra fuel and explosives, he still could have killed far more than 59 people simply by doing a landing gear up landing right on that crowd of people. That's a great point. He, he, he could he could have killed probably two or three hundred people before that plane came to a stop, maybe even more. I guess it was a crowd of twenty thousand people. And any decently skilled pilot could uh, execute a gear up landing any somewhere in that crowd and done tremendous damage. And uh, if he had wanted to plan it even further, he could have um, packed an airplane with explosives and killed several hundred people, maybe, you know, six or seven hundred people uh, if, if he wanted to do it that way. So I've really got to wonder, since he has such a strong background in aviation, why he didn't do an aviation-type attack. And there was a attack on an IRS building back east uh, more than a decade ago with a gentleman about his same age who was a tax protester. And um, that would have fit the model of someone, the, the mindset of someone who had a general aviation ticket. So that was the first thing that popped into my mind when I heard that he had a pilot's license and that he owned two airplanes already. Mr. Rawls, um, that, that is an exceptional insight. Uh, John Robertson sitting in for Doug Hagman this evening, by the way. Uh, Doug is, uh, up to his eyeballs in investigating this tragedy in Las Vegas. The Northeast Intelligence Network has been very busy since Sunday evening when this event occurred. Uh, Mr. Rawls, with your permission, um, having read all of your books and in many cases given so many copies of, of many of the Patriot series away as gifts over the years, uh, for our listeners' benefit, I'm just going to take a quick moment to shade in a little bit of your background because I'd like to ask you some fairly technical questions uh, and ask your opinion about some of the issues regarding the firearms that they that they supposedly found in the room. Uh, our guest, uh, folks, is James Wesley Rawls, who served uh, as a commissioned officer in the Army. He was a captain in the U.S. Army and served in an intelligence unit. And if I remember correctly, it's been a while since I've heard this part of your bio, sir, but uh, one of the things that our guest uh, was responsible for back in the uh, early to mid-80s was looking at the uh, fragility factor, if you will, of Central and South American countries. And I would remind our listeners and viewers that this is during the Reagan era when at any moment El Salvador, Nicaragua, Honduras, any of these countries... Uh, could have been the first domino to fall uh, in sort of a, a, a Vietnam fashion. And our guest, uh, James Wesley Rawls, as a captain in the U.S. Army, was responsible for looking at all kind of criteria uh, in these countries uh, that would suggest whether or not or how susceptible they would be to, uh, to communism, uh, looking at things like calories consumed per day, number of generations in a single domicile, more obvious things like number of vehicles owned, etc. So our guest has extensive knowledge in intelligence and an intelligence background, and he has written 
a series, a five-book series, the Patriot series, which I cannot recommend highly enough for anyone who is preparedness-minded. The the five-book series is a must-read. It is a top-shelf series, Uh, again, by our guest, James Wesley Rawls. He's also written a couple of nonfiction books, uh, How to Survive the End of the World as We Know It, uh, again, a a must-read for preparedness-minded people, and a uh, recent book uh, that I've, the title escapes me, Mr. Rawls. It's uh, about having the proper tools for preparation. Right. So, tools for also from Penguin Books. Thank you so much. So, and thank you for giving me the the opportunity just to, to kind of shade in your bio a little bit, because uh, one of the reasons we were excited to bring you on tonight, when you read the Patriot series, for example, you clearly have a a very good understanding of the of the basic firearm platforms not just uh, US manufactured but really manufactured stuff from all over the world uh and in your writing you write extensively about weapons platforms that can be purchased over the counter so to speak as well as things that are available only to law enforcement special forces etc a uh, couple of questions mr rawls first of all uh why 23 weapons 23 long guns Number two, do you buy this whole bump stock story? And number three, how did this guy get this much ammo up into the room, and how many shots would he have had to get off to wound over 500 people? Yeah, well, um, to back up just a little bit, I think the the 500-plus casualties figure, some of those were probably not attributed to gunshot wounds, but being trampled by the crowd trying to get out of that arena. Uh, so I, perhaps 400 people might have been wounded, and that ratio is believable given uh, 556 bullets uh, arriving at over 400 yards, where they've already lost about half their energy. So there would be, be a lot more wounding than, uh, ca- than full-on casualties. Um, basically, with 556 at that range, with either a 55 grain or 62 grain bullet unless the chest cavity or the, the spinal column or the head is hit, then you're going to end up with some, some traumatic wounds but not deaths. So the, the ratio of 58 to, say, 400 is believable. Now, as for, you asked about the bump fire stocks, there are several brands on the market. The one in the photograph that was that was. Uh, surreptitiously released looks like a uh, slide fire brand uh, second generation bump fire stock and it's possible that if he had trained extensively with that stock uh, he might have been able to get off really long extending a bump fire stock have it tend to stutter quite a bit where uh, you'll get off just a few rounds, and maybe perhaps a string of 20 or 30, and then another stutter, and, um, you know, it, it, it really varies in terms of how many rounds you can get off without an interruption. But if you listen to the audio that accompanied the video of the, of the shooting attack, at least the one string that I heard sounded like in excess of 80 rounds, continuous at cyclic rate, with no interruption whatsoever. So that tells me either that he was actually shooting a a converted semi-auto with the the seven magic parts, or 
he had trained extensively with a bump fire stock to get off long strings like that. But I'm still kind of incredulous. Also, the numbers kept getting inflated. At first, we were told there were six guns in the hotel room. Then we were told there were 14 guns in the hotel room. Then there were, what was it, 19 or 20. And now we're told, well, in excess of 20 guns in the, in the hotel room. And originally, we were told there were two bump fire stocks. Then we were told there were six bump fire stocks. Now we're being told there were 12 bump fire stocks found in the room. And why just one man would feel he needed to bring 12 guns equipped with bump fire stocks to carry out a single-handed attack leaves me really scratching my head. Um, and James, let me jump in here uh, just real quick to, to, to uh, mention this. There were several, from what I understand and read, there were several fully loaded magazines in the room but also the amount of firepower many people left many people asking instead of switching magazines from the guns was he just moving from one gun to the other but what you're talking about with the sustained rate of fire it's hard to imagine because there were no 100 round drums up there that from what we saw there were only what 30 round magazines well no there were longer than 30 round magazines at, at least the one pictured magazine was at least a 60 round Surefire magazine, which is actually a, a very unusual quadruple column magazine that's tapered. And outwardly, it looks like a 30 or 40 round magazine, but if you look carefully at the photo, you'll see it's a very thick magazine. The Surefire magazines are made in 60 and 100 round capacity, although it looked like the one in the photograph was actually a 60 rounders. So it's possible that he was using 100 round Surefire magazines. Or if he had half a brain, he would probably use Beta C magazines, which is a double snail drum 100-round magazine, because they're more reliable than Surefire magazines. Uh, yes, Mr. Mr. Rawls, quickly, uh, with regard to the 100-rounders, uh, the, uh, the second one you just mentioned, and, I, and I've personally fired these a few times, can you please tell us the name again? They, they, they tend to look like a figure eight, sort of. It's made by the Beta Company, and its formal name is a C-Mag. That's a capital C-M-A-G, C standing for the you know the Roman numeral for 100. Okay, and and so with that double snail drum magazine that doesn't extend below the receiver of an AR-15 any more than about a, a 30 round magazine. They're fairly compact and they're very reliable, and they're only slightly more expensive than a Surefire magazine. I'm, I'm really surprised he didn't source those instead of Surefire magazines. Well, I, I w when all is said and done, when they do finally do the perp walk type, type layout of everything that he had, that we see some beta magazines there. Well, last last question on that, uh, and then we can go wherever you like with, uh, with the time that you have available for us this evening, Mr. Rawls. But with the C-Mags, the beta C-Mags, uh, I've I've bump fired a couple times in my life. Uh, would the weight of a hundred rounds of five five six two two three ammo uh, in that Beta C mag would the weight of that compromise the bump fire stock capability? Would you know for for those not familiar with bump firing, it's it's a the weight would 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 affect it, would it not? Uh, to an extent, and in fact, it would make it more difficult to get off a hundred round string. Uh, but again, if he practiced extensively, and also we have to, what's really odd is all the rifles that we've been shown are equipped with bipods. But anyone who's ever fired us a, a, a slide fire 
bump stock knows you really can't use one from a bipod effectively because you need to simultaneously have a forward pressure on the forend and a backward pressure on the stock to achieve a continuous string of bump fire. And uh, using a bipod from a rest actually makes it more difficult to do. It's actually better done standing up or kneeling. So and the other um, kind of hard to calculate factor is the, is the fact that he was shooting downwards at a, a 30 or 40 degree angle, which uh, unless he practiced with that from a hillside somewhere, would have made it difficult for him to achieve a long string of, of bump fire uninterrupted. So there's a lot of unanswered questions here, and a lot. You kind of almost, it's like almost like watching a fictional movie and having to suspend disbelief. That's the situation we're in right now with all the technical aspects of the firearms that were used. Now it may we may find out later that he had illegally converted an AR-15 to full auto, which is my, well, my original suspicion, or that he um, had trained extensively with with a slide fire stock. But even still, I, I really have my doubts that he, A, carried this out entirely by himself, and B, that the equipment that we've been shown so far at least matches the audio uh, from that from that incident. It, it doesn't add up. It's not quite uh, to the level of a JFK situation where you, know, you can't fire a Carcano bolt action rapid fire um, like, like it was done in the, the attack on John F. Kennedy, but it's it's almost to that level of incredulity. Okay, and and James, I want to uh, get into some of what we saw with the police response, and you know, we know that it took the shooting lasted for approximately ten minutes, but it took the uh, police seventy sure. plus minutes. Yeah. <laughs> And then I yeah. want to get into the ambulance and the uh, actual concert venue and some of the inconsistencies there with the uh, exits being blocked and the lack of ambulances even after the shooting stopped and EMT workers in there. But, yeah, let's start with the police response. Well, the police response, I think, may have been just simple timidity, and the same thing happened with the Pulse nightclub attack in Orlando, Florida, a year ago, where the police were too timid to charge in and uh, try to, to, to confront this guy, um, even though the the security guard had already apparently unlocked the door from the outside with a master electronic key. So the, uh, apparently the, the door inside was was blocked with a chair or two, but nothing that would have stopped them. They but they very timidly waited and consulted amongst themselves, and then they brought then they brought in a full-on SWAT team, and then that SWAT team fiddled around with not one, but two different explosive charges to breach the doors. Um, I think perhaps they were timid because they were expecting a large volume of fire coming from the room if they if they charged in, or they were expecting explosive devices, a booby trap type device, if they simply charged into the room. I, th I think that is a, a good enough explanation of why it took them 70 minutes. And given the fact there wasn't any shooting coming from the room for 60 of those 70 minutes, um, I, I can certainly understand their timidity. It, if, if the shooting had continued, if they had still hesitated, then I would have been 
horribly disappointed with them. But um, I, I think their timidity is, is understandable. Yeah, and then they, uh, I don't know if you saw the reports of the security guard who approached the door first, and, and the, the shooter, Paddock, had apparently up to three cameras, one in the hallway, one in the uh, peephole, and uh, another that he was uh, apparently wearing when he carried out the attack. But there were reports that the security guard approached the door and was met by hundreds of rounds of fire, but the door really didn't indicate that, uh, well, I don't even think the door would be there if it went through hundreds of rounds of fire, but the security guard was shot in the leg, and um, then they blew the doors off and entered, stating that they found the man dead, and we learned today that he had an uh, extensive escape route planned, and I, I haven't seen what that was yet. But I, I haven't heard of the details on that either, but um, if anything, that unarmed security guard showed a lot more guts than the police officers did. So um, he yeah. actually, his attempt to enter the room apparently is what got Stephen Paddock to panic and shoot himself. Because he still had a lot more ammunition and guns he had never even fired. Uh, now, I could see why he would bring two or three guns, all or similarly or identically equipped, in the anticipation that one of them might jam with that high volume of fire. So that's believable. Why he would bring a dozen AR-15s, all converted with bump fire stocks, absolutely baffles me. Was he planning to have Confederates with him and have, and, and you'll notice he knocked out the glass from two different windows. Was he planning to have uh, three or four fi shooters firing simultaneously? That actually matches the, the logistics that he'd lay in. Now, you asked earlier about how he managed to get that many guns and, am uh, and ammunition into the hotel. There, I simply, I think that he simply um, skipped having a bellhop involved at all and carried his own bags upstairs or wheeled them upstairs. They looked like they were rolling luggage. So that's believable. He could have done that, and he was there for three days. So he could have done that very gradually over a period of time and not attracted a lot of suspicion. Also, these were long guns, but they were all in the AR family, meaning that they can be disassembled simply by pushing two uh, pivot pins and uh, breaking them down where, if with a 16-inch barrel and 8 inches of receiver, it'll end up with any, the, the longest single component would have been about 22 or 23 inches long, which would have fit fairly easily, at least laid di diagonally into most large rolling luggage. So that's fully yeah, and, you know, we saw a receipt <clears throat> released, for, actually, from the police that he checked in on the 28th. We saw a room receipt from the 27th where there was uh, dining for two, in-room dining for two. Um, so he was there a number of days, and I believe over a period of a, of a few days, you could easily, um, you know, even just one one at a time, one gun at a time, uh, the amount of times you go back up and forth to your room could have, could have got those weapons up there. I don't. I mean, it's not like he carried it all up in one big uh, trip. No, no. It, yeah, it could have been done very gradually over the course of three days and not attracted a lot of suspicion. I'm just wondering who John Doe number one is. Yeah, and it's interesting that you make the point that um, the number of weapons and the logistics that uh, he could have, or maybe even had, you know, a, a, a second or third person involved or wanted to at least. That's much more plausible than him carrying up you know, two dozen weapons for his own personal use uh, right. during that yeah, shooting. Even, even with the anticipation of 
you know, a gun melting down or, or, or a gun jamming, um, having stoppages with, um, with that insane level of fire, which really an AR-15 is not designed for. You know, he was basically using an AR in a squad automatic role. That that role with a very high volume of fire is better suited to a belt fed like an M249. Or you know, at least Mr. Rawls, with a Shrike upper. It, it, and it's interesting you would say that because uh, uh, Sergeant Joe Biggs, uh, formerly of InfoWars, tweeted out day before yesterday, uh, I can't get, I'm not going to be able to get it verbatim, but I'll paraphrase. It said to affect, uh, my military buddies and I believe this to be a, a squad, you know, a, a, a 240 squad automatic weapon. Uh, again, Joe Biggs on Twitter day before yesterday. But there's another question I, I want to ask you. I'm just curious because you have such unique versimilitude in your expertise as demonstrated in your writing. Uh, and going back to your first uh, fictional book, uh, book, Patriots, one of the things I loved about the book is you set up this this great cast of characters, and you and you talk extensively about the upgrades they do to their home in Idaho. Uh, and it, it for for DIY type people, uh, you you really go into some some incredible detail. I remember the, the talking about the construction of. Uh, of the the doors and and reinforcing the windows and the points of access and egress etc. And for that reason, uh, reminiscent of those chapters in Patriots, Mr. Rawls, I want to ask your opinion about uh, actually knocking the holes in the glass on the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay Hotel. Uh, now, Joe Hagman and I, yeah, go ahead. I mean, what's 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 your take on it, sir? I actually have to claim ignorance on that. Now, in one of the photos that was released, it looks like there's a rescue or safety hammer laying on the floor, a, a bright-colored hammer. And even with laminated glass and uh, with the Mandalay Bay Tower, it looks like they used an outer uh, gold mylar film over the windows and or either inner or outer, I would assume outer for that high high reflectivity. I don't think it's any great stretch of the imagination to think that he could have knocked those windows out himself. Um, the, the the other thing that that um, kind of baffles me is the one window from which he was supposedly firing was completely knocked out. If he wanted to kill himself. Um, why couldn't he have just continued firing until he heard signs of someone entering the room and simply just jumped out the window? He could have kept firing much longer. So if, if this man was a total cold-blooded psychopath, like we're told, then why wouldn't he opt for that option? Because he still had hundreds of rounds of ammunition in loaded magazines available to shoot. It just doesn't fit. Does, there's a lot of things that just don't add up, in my estimation. Yeah, and I think you're right. It, it doesn't add up. Why, with the amount of firepower you have in the room, why stop shooting after only the first ten minutes, especially when you had an additional hour? Um, I mean, just as you said, there is a lot here that doesn't add up, and the abundance of information we're receiving is not really important to the plot. Um, although it is important to the overall narrative, it's not really important to the plot that we're seeing. And you also have right. the, the strange uh, occurrence of somebody 45 minutes 
before the shooting took place in the crowd saying that you're all going to die. Then you had yeah, the... Uh, that might have just been someone who was panicky, who was worried about the density of the crowd of someone who had agoraphobia, for example. Um, okay, maybe, does that happen? Have you? Uh, we've heard cases like this before. That's, that's believable, although that coincidence is a little, little odd. Um, I'd like to kind of diverge and talk about uh, the Hegelian dialectic here for a, a minute. If, if the goal here, if he was a mind control subject or if he was a trained ISIS uh, follower or if he was someone um, uh, who, who wanted to carry out an attack like the one on Washington, D.C. that, that uh, very seriously injured uh, Congressman uh, Scalise, why, why was it that he was so heavily armed with, with just small arms? Why didn't he use his aviation background? And it seems almost like he was a poster child for for gun control because of the number of guns, and they were almost they were all AR-15s or, or AR-10s. He had a dozen bump fire stocks. It's like if someone wanted to have a wind up toy, a mind control subject used for the political goal of banning bump fire stocks. Uh, I can't think of a better setup than 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 what he was providing, because it was like almost like it was a a set piece arrangement to say, aha, here here are these evil large capacity magazines, and here are these evil bump fire stocks. They need to be banned. You couldn't have set it up any better. So I, I wonder, we bono. Especially, Mr. Rawls, thank you so much for standing up and stating it exactly uh, as you see it. Uh, we would be remiss if we didn't remind our listeners that there were not one but two pieces of legislation, uh, one before the House, uh, that, of course, being uh, the one that the uh, legislation involving silencers, the availability thereof, et cetera. And then, of course, there's the, I believe, I don't believe it had actually uh, made it to bill status yet, but the NRA uh, proposal for 50-state reciprocity of the concealed carry. Uh, and, of course, uh, basically all of us who voted for President Trump really would love to see that, that reciprocity of concealed carry. There was also a, a petition campaign that was leading up to legislation that would have completely canceled out the National Firearms Act of 1934. All three of those pieces of legislation or potential legislation have now, of course, been completely sidetracked. And if, if anything, we're probably going to see a retrograde, retrograde where we have end up with legislation that's going to end up either banning uh, high-capacity magazines or banning uh, bump fire stocks or perhaps uh, with the piece of legislation that Senator Feinstein just offered, it was so loosely worded, even a match trigger, a light trigger, for an AR would be banned because it could, see, could conceivably be considered something that could accelerate the rate of fire versus a standard AR-15 trigger. So that would affect virtually all Geissele triggers, match triggers, uh, binary triggers, FOSTEC triggers, 
And, of course, all the add-ons like bump fire stocks and uh, hellfire triggers and all that whole panoply would not be just banned from further production, but banned from ownership, where people would literally have to turn them in for destruction. And the uh, it flies right in the face of American jurisprudence that the wording of Senator Feinstein's bill doesn't even allow for compensation for that unconstitutional taking. Whenever you take someone's, if you ban, a, ban something and, and force someone to turn it in, under American jurisprudence, typically there is a mechanism for reimbursing someone for that loss. Otherwise, it's a federal taking. You know, Mr. Rawls, uh, you're, you're writing is so prescient and proves to this day to to be so prescient. Uh, having written, I believe, Patriots in 1993-94, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I'd like... One, but yeah. Uh, and not... I actually have to point, if you want to talk prescience, I have to point you Please. to Matt Bracken and his series of novels, especially his first novel titled Enemies Foreign and Domestic. And that novel, in the first chapter opens with an attack from long range on a stadium uh, by someone who is a well, he's actually a patsy um, but um, if you're gonna if you're gonna talk prescience please don't try to credit me I think real credit belongs to Matt Bracken and the, you know it, 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 it is kind of stick book. it is it is kind of you to say so and so apropos because our third hour guest this evening is none other than Matt Bracken because Fantastic. Mr. Rawls, I too read Enemies, Foreign and Domestic. I read all three of his books and, uh, and we are certainly going to get his commentary uh, on exactly what you just beautifully set up for us. So thank you for that. What I wanted uh, to ask you, and I know you have just a few minutes left with us, sir, but how much more do you think the American people are going to put up with? Uh, we were just talking about a, a, a perceived possible gun grab. Feinstein's been at this forever. Uh, in your books, you, you, I, you craft characters who are always decent and reasonable. They're, they're, they're always, they, they tend to be Christian, uh, in all different walks of faith, different denominations, etc. but they tend to be, in my opinion, they tend to, demonstrate reasonable, decent, traditional Americans. And that's one of the things I like about your work. But many of your characters hit a point where they say enough is enough. I've seen the First, Second, Fourth Amendment, Tenth Amendment trampled enough. This is the line. We go no further from here. What are your thoughts moving forward, Mr. Rawls? Well, unfortunately, uh, given our media-driven society... I don't expect that most Americans are going to reach a revulsion point before they end up before behind barbed wire. Um, we have been living under the gradual expansion of federal power ever since the Civil War. Uh, the two most rapid periods of expansion, of course, were during the Civil War itself and during the, the Great Depression of the 1930s, when all the alphabet soup agencies got started. But We've been so gradually enslaved, I think that unless there is a monumental trigger event like the Declaration of Martial Law and uh, a 
a roundup of privately owned firearms by federal decree. Unless there was a, a huge trigger event like that, I'm afraid that most Americans are not going to reach a revulsion point and they're simply going to go uh, passively uh, in, into the night, as it were. Yeah, you know, that's always, um, you know, we always see uh, a huge amount of, of the American public that um, just about will do anything the government says to a degree, and you wonder, you know, uh, how trusting, that, that level of trust that the American people have had with the government historically uh, seems to be getting lower and lower as the years move forward, but, you know, there are still massive amounts of, of people that do and interestingly enough, whatever happened in Las Vegas or whatever was supposed to happen, um, one of the, the points I, I want to make on the gun control issue is that even a number uh, from Steve Scalise, who was the victim of his own shooting in May, to a number of the, the victims uh, from Las Vegas, they have flat out come out against the mainstream media narrative and you know said gun, gun control is not the answer. And now right. we see, you know, the uh, Congress going after the the what, the bump stock and other way uh, modification uh, ways to make uh, semi-automatic guns, um, you know, fire as automatics. But they're well, not that, getting the response. They're not truly automatic. They're actually just um, accelerated in a way that allows more rapid manipulation of the trigger, or in okay. the case of binary trigger. Um, Legally allows a a weapon to fire on the pull of the trigger and then the release of the trigger. Uh, so it's not truly fully automatic fire. That the mass media is trying to make it sound like it's fully automatic, but it's not. Okay. Well, the um, and, back to the and just, just a little bit. Um, you mentioned uh, people reaching a revulsion point. I I got to thinking last night uh, as I lay in bed. Um, 25 years ago, if someone were to tell me that people at airports would passively line up, submit, subject themselves to full body scans, groping, removing their shoes, and um, having all their luggage gone through in de uh, the way they currently are, I would have said, oh, people would never put up with that. But here we are in the post 9-11 world where people have very meekly um, gone down that slippery slope and I think the next step will be TSA agents at bus stops and at train stations and eventually to the point where there may be um, diversion of traffic from highways into roadside checkpoints with TSA goons groping people by, on, the, on the roadside and searching through their cars without without a warrant. You know, Mr. Rawls, it is a sad state of affairs, and it's certainly a grim uh, a grim supposition that you make. Unfortunately, I'm in agreement with you, sir. And I think we're already seeing it at the casinos. Exactly. What has happened? Uh, you used the term Hegelian dialectic earlier. I want to bounce another back your direction. I know you're familiar with it, and of course, that is the Overton window. And when when a government becomes tyrannical and learns to create a problem, create the solution, and thus ultimately attain the goal that they set in to begin with, which is typically one of greater control, greater tyranny, 
greater debt-driven society, etc., they always give the populace the sense of a false victory from time to time. Two steps forward, one step back. Three steps forward, two steps back. And whereas, again, I wish I could disagree with what you just said, having been a resident of four major cities in my life, and most recently Seattle and Los Angeles, uh, they already have TSA that walk the public transportation uh, environments in Los Angeles. And the uh, level of invasive behavior that the average American will put up with at this time makes me sick. I have to agree with you. We, we really need to pray that the American people will summon up enough collective backbone to say no if the, I'm afraid the Republican leadership in Congress, given the, the Paul Lyons of the world, I think are going to, are going to cave in, especially if President Trump mentions publicly that he's willing to sign legislation that would do X, Y, or Z, like banning bump fire stocks or banning large, uh, actually full capacity magazines. Um, we really need to have backbone and we really need to have some kind of pushback on Congress. People need to speak up quite vociferously or we're going to be down another step down the road toward tyranny. James, if I can ask you this, uh, I'm not sure how much you've seen about the alleged Antifa Day of Rage, November 4th, but do you see... Um, how we see the populist movements being used in uh, Catalonia. One uh, is one example where they just voted for their independence against Spain, and there are um, other examples in Europe where they're saying populist movements are are going to be, uh, you know, we're going to be seeing more of those, and a number of other countries are at risk of seeing themselves split from the European Union. Do you see the uh, ability for the uh, Antifa types, the left, to actually carry out this day of rage that they're trying to accomplish? I do indeed, and in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of it is at arm's length, done primarily with cyber attacks, because let's face it, the majority of people who are involved in Antifa are millennials, and those are people who are quite savvy with uh, computer programming, hacking type skills, and um, beca also because they tend to be fairly cowardly snowflake individuals I think their preferred method will be cyber attacks so um, it is quite possible that on November 4th or so at some point in the next few years we could see a coordinated cyber attack on large portions of our infrastructure whether it's oil and natural gas pipelines the electrical power grid, power generating stations, telecommunications, uh, water treatment, uh, water transport, any number of, of key pieces of infrastructure could be attacked simultaneously with uh, zero-day style attacks uh, with devastating effect. Also, don't uh, underestimate the ability of uh, these millennial Antifa uh, terrorists to use off-the-shelf technologies like quadrocopter dr drones and uh, possibly using either uh, chemical irritants, uh, toxins, 
uh, neurotoxins. Um, they could use any number of different or, or small explosives mm-hmm. to, again, be able to do a, a at-arms-reach attack where they would have a, a good op- opportunity to escape detection and get away. So, again, these off-the-shelf technologies are uh, a considerable risk and um, don't underestimate these people and their ability to, to use them. Uh, when you, Especially if you look at fairly easy to formulate uh, toxins, especially if they're mixed with a transdermal carrier like BMSO, you could have a, a, a very... It, we didn't have to be an explosive charge. It could just be a... Uh, a CO2 cylinder that's used to dispense a small cloud of of a neuro of a toxin that's mixed with DMSO, and you end up with anywhere from 20 to 200 people dead. And if you add the quadricopter drone technology, not you, you could do that from a standoff distance, and that will make virtually all public events where you have large crowds at great risk. It's also going to mean the end of the traditional political speech at an open-air arena or, or, or large enclosed um, coliseum, for example. I think that will become a, a thing of the past in the next few years after the first Antifa attack using those off-the-shelf technologies. Very, very interesting. Uh, James Wesley Rawls is our guest. Uh, his website is survivalblog.com. Um James, just want to ask you one last question on back, back to Las Vegas real quick. Um, we saw that the shooter Stephen Paddock, whether whatever his reasons for this were, I don't know, that he booked venues in uh, Boston and Chicago, in Boston overlooking Fenway Park, and Chicago overlooking the Lollapalooza type uh, or the Lollapalooza event. Do you think that we're going to see more of these types of, of attacks on open? You just mentioned that the open stadiums, open arenas, um, mm-hmm. type events where people congregate in mass for these different events. Do you think we're going to see an increase? I think that's very likely because the whole goal of terror is to get the maximum bang for the buck. And if you can have a large number of people congregated in a fairly compact area, that provides what the military refers to as a target-rich environment. So I think they will indeed try that. I think the James Hodgkinson attack was just a precursor, and by the same token, the the Stephen Paddock attack was just a precursor of things to come, perhaps on a grand scale. I've I've suggested in my blog that we may end up with a, a period of heightened terrorism, a lot like the late 1960s and the early 70s, with the draft post protests that spawned uh, domestic terrorism with groups like the Weather Underground and the Sindhianese Liberation Army and the Black Liberation Army. We could see a very similar time period here in the United States, and unfortunately, the response to that on the part of state and federal authorities could be far worse than the attacks themselves. James, we have a question from a Maria W. in our email. She said she read an article that the perpetrator was a gun runner for the government and or possibly ISIS, and that ISIS may have taken advantage or radicalized him and were the actual ones to do the shootings. But she wants to know, 
would the guns that he had there be consistent with the kinds of, of guns um, in these types of weapon deals? Were there anything special about them? Were they common? Not in particular. They're fairly common weapons. Um, you know, the, the AR family of firearms has become so ubiquitous in the last 10 years that it's essentially like, you know, Barbie dolls for men where uh, you have unlimited opportunities to accessorize. <laughs> and, um, no, they're, they're truly modular guns. And they're, it's, it's an off-the-shelf technology. Um, they're truly ubiquitous. Um, ever since the election of President Trump, their price point has dropped to ridiculous levels. You can actually buy a pretty nice AR-15, um, a full-up AR-15 with, you know, a chrome chamber or even chrome bore um, for under $350 right now. That wow. During the Obama administration, that would have been a $1,350 rifle. So um, they're out there in large numbers. I I actually am gratified to see so many in, in private circulation because it makes it virtually impossible for the government to ever round them up. But uh, Amen. In, term, in, in terms of him being a gun runner, uh, I really I really doubt that. I he, he really um, appears to have been a uh, a near genius level uh, card shark where he's. He, he, at least in terms of the game of poker, develop a mathematical system to fairly consistently um, earn a profit. Which you know the casinos never like that. They don't. They don't like card counters, and they don't like uh, people who, who rig the system. But someone with uh, a decent head on their shoulders and some patience, and who has the ability to stay away from you know alcohol. Uh, can actually make some money at this, and I think he was an example of someone who had done that. Um, his father was a diagnosed psychopath. I suspect he might have been as well, but we still haven't heard the real story. I would really like to hear and see the video that he supposedly took of his own tech. He apparently had a camera set up. I would like to hear what he was saying. I'd really like to hear if he was saying Allahu Akbar. Or you know, you know, death to Trump and his compadres, or whatever. Um, it, I want to hear what's on that video. I'd really like to know what he wrote in the note that is visible on the the table in his room. Apparently, he left some sort of suicide note. I really want to see what was in that note. Are we ever going to be uh, apprised of what was there, or is that information going to be suppressed? Because his psychological pro profile does not match the typical running amok or going postal profile where someone um, snaps and starts killing people on pretty short notice. He was very methodical, which to me looks like well, a well-planned terrorist incident. And the, the, pro the psychological profile that would match would be someone who's either politically motivated like Hodgkinson, or religiously motivated, like uh, Omar Mateen. So um, it remains it remains to be seen, and I'm kind of waiting with bated breath to to see what is released because I don't think we've been told the whole story yet. No, and I, I agree with you. And you know, the more that we look, the more that I look in, into his background. Um, 
and, and the same information you just um, outlined, you know, you'd almost think the kind of person he was that he he would be more conservative leaning, being a gun owner for a number of years, even though he only started amassing a huge quantity of guns in the last year, being somewhat independently wealthy for whatever reasons, whether it was legitimate or illegitimate, and um, but the the fact that there is, I think uh, there's a lot to what you're saying about the the note, the body camera footage, and I think I would hope that would tell us a lot more than what we already know, because that's one of the things that I believe makes this such a uh, a frightening uh, situation for the American people is not having that that intimate knowledge of what drove this man to do what he did, whether it, you know whether it could be the most extreme or minuscule excuse to us, you know whether he was uh, kicked off a blackjack table and just decided to go postal and set up this great big plan, or he felt wronged by you know whoever. Um, that kind of closure does help the the Americans and anybody really move on from this kind of event, but we don't have that yet. And until we have that, we're going to continue to have rampant speculation from ISIS to an anti-Trump person, and we're not going to know uh, what to really make of it. And I think that that in itself is dangerous. Yes, I agree. Well, thank you so much for having me on as your guest. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and I hope that uh, your listeners will pray about this and that they will remain politically active. We can't just be passive. And we don't want to roll over and play dead on this. We need to stick to our guns, literally, and make it clear to Congress that the Second Amendment is unequivocal. Amen. Amen and amen. Our guest this hour, James Wesley Rawls, truly, in my humble opinion, one of the great uh, statesmen, uh, patriarchs, if you will, of the modern preparedness-minded movement. Certainly his books were instrumental in uh, my red pill moment back in 2009. He is also the gentleman, by the way, who coined the term the American Redoubt, a region of inland northwest states that many independent-minded, uh, conservative, constitution-loving, and God-loving Americans are choosing to relocate to. Joe, what a treat to have Mr. Rawls join us tonight. Absolutely. Yeah, Mr. Rawls, thank you so much. Survivalblog.com is the website, and make sure you bookmark that and check it regularly. Uh, thank you, Mr. Rawls. Thank you so much, and God bless you and your listeners. God bless you, too. God bless you, sir. We only have about two minutes left in this segment, so I want to take a minute to do this. Um, this is something that we're going to... Uh, John, I know that you talked about this. Uh, we talked about this as a staff uh, together that we were going to start yeah. um, giving thank yous out on air to, exactly. to some of our donors, and I believe these were just picked at random. Um, but just want to just want to go through a few of these. This one is from Donna T. I enjoy your show so much. It's the first thing I turn on every morning and the last thing I listen to each night. Thank you, Donna T. And then there's a beautiful card um, that is is very nice. Also, we have one from Patty O. She says, "God bless you both." You, your employees, your wives, your families, and your studio dogs. Where would we all be without you two? And then she goes on uh, to compliment us and, and says she's learned so much about the Bible and the times we're in, we're in and trying to be prepared in all the ways and all the guests and everything they talk about, trying to prepare others the best way I know how. I can only say thank you for these gifts that you have given me. Uh, that from, from Patty O. Uh, Patty, thank you so much. 
And, you know, we would not be here without people like you. And this last one was is from Michelle G. And uh, Renee sent a, a thank you note back to her uh, yesterday or yeah, today. And she says, God bless you all. I'm praying for the Lord Jesus to touch you all and keep you well and safe. You are brave people. Your email brought tears. Have a blessed day. And that from Michelle G. And we just want to say thank you so much to the uh, listeners who support our show, whether it's through spreading the word about the show, through prayer, through monetary donations. Um, if it would not be possible without your support. So we just want to take the time out to say thank you so much. And we're going to start doing more of these. I'm not sure if it's going to be on a daily basis, a weekly basis. And, but and we're going to make sure that we, um, you know, uh, I mean, if we literally, if we took our listener mail, we could uh, fill up a whole table just from, you know, we could fill up this whole big desk just from what we got this year, maybe even just, you know, the last three months. It does come in pretty heavy at, at times, but it's uh, it's a great thing, and it's a, a great feeling to have people out there that are praying for you and um, supporting us, and at the same time, they are they are, are learning about uh, different subjects through our guests, through us, but either way, all of it's possible through the Lord, because as we say so often, we did not put ourselves here and uh this was by the lord's guidance and and we're going to continue to move in the direction that that he guides us but just want to say thank you to each and every every one of you out there who support us again we could not do this without you when we come back back matt bracken will be our guest so don't go anywhere Just what kind of thriller predicts the future? In three days in the belly of the beast, Daniel Holdings wrote about the God Particle before CERN actually discovered the God Particle. In As the Darkness Falls, Daniel wrote about an Islamist terrorist confederacy that rose up out of Syria and declared a caliphate three years before ISIS was ever heard of. In his newest novel, Between the Veil, Daniel talks about a space between dimensions where supernatural beings can walk. He says that these novels are a warning from the creator to his creation. Will war come to America? Will the world's economies collapse? Are we looking at increased earthquakes and volcanic activity? Will the United States fall into civil war? You can find all of Daniel's work at his website, DanielHoldings.com. That's DanielHoldings.com. All of these things and more are talked about in Daniel's books. To find out what's coming next, go to DanielHoldings.com. Worldwide demand is making coconuts one of the highest-yielding cash crops available today. Coca-Cola, Pepsi, and many high-net-worth individuals have invested billions of dollars into coconuts for strong growth and solid long-term income. Yields could be as high as 18% or more per year. Capital appreciation and exceptional income for up to 60 long years would be an absolutely brilliant investment to pass on to future generations. Diversify wisely with direct ownership of fully managed coconuts on prime farmland close to the beautiful Costa Rican border. For more information, qualified accredited investors should go to ProfitsInCoconuts.com 
or phone 855-888-6288. That's 855-888-6288. This announcement does not constitute an offer to sell securities or a solicitation of an offer to purchase. Offer made by prospectus only. 855-888-6288 or visit ProfitsInCoconuts.com. ProfitsInCoconuts.com. You may never look at your city, town, or its people the same way ever again. Stained by Blood, a murder investigation based upon a true story by private investigator Douglas J. Hagman. Using the character Mark Stiles, Hagman takes you on a journey behind the scenes where the homicide becomes a secondary to an underworld of satanic ritual abuse, child abduction, and even mind-controlled experimentation. For five years, a brutal killer remained on the loose, free to kill again. As Mark struggles to navigate the maze of bizarre twists and untangle a web of deeply hidden secrets kept by some of the most powerful and influential people in his community and beyond. Stained by Blood. Order your copy of this engaging novel today at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stained by Blood at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stained by Blood. to our third hour of this edition of the Hagman Report. We're going to be joined by uh, Matt Bracken, a decorated U.S. Navy SEAL, in this third hour. Uh, and he's going to be with us just uh, in, in just a few moments. But I want to bring your attention to an interesting piece that we were talking about during the last break here um, in the Hagman Studios that has made its way to Drudge. Vegas Shooter's girlfriend says he would lie in bed moaning and screaming Mary Lou Danley, the woman investigators hoped would provide key details into the motive behind her boyfriend's deadly shooting attack, remembers him exhibiting symptoms such as lying in bed, moaning and screaming, according to two former FBI officials who have been briefed on the matter. She said he would lie in bed, just moaning and screaming, oh my God, one of the former officials said. Wow. Um, you know, that sounds, it sounds like night, night terrors, potential night terrors, Joe, and you know, uh, we once in a while we have a segment where we get so much raw data that we just have to go back and, and review it the following day. And I think that hour two with uh, our guest James Wesley Rawls was one of those segments. Uh, some of the questions he asked uh, were just so spot on. I want to I want to see those tapes. I want to hear what's mm-hmm. on the, the the video and the audio as well. And I want to know what that note says. And I think. That with 330 million Americans' hearts who have been uh, that, that have been broken, and in many cases spirits that have been disheartened, I think we have a right uh, to that information, and I think we have a right to that information sooner than later. But we've got uh, Matt Bracken this hour, Joe, and uh, he's been on the show several times before. Uh, just a quality guest, and 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 I, I would be remiss if I didn't remind our listeners, it was Matt Bracken who coined. The uh, the term uh, swamp lawyers uh, hmm. last time he was with us, and we and we adopted that here at the Hagman Report, and it's just so appropriate uh, for these uh, these uh, Comey, Mueller, and their ilk. Matt, welcome back to the show. Hello, how are you? What uh, a week! Yeah, what a week! What a week to have you back on. Indeed, um, I guess let's just let's uh, start with the uh, the events in Las Vegas. Um, Matt, why don't you tell us about uh, just your overall assessment of the ordeal? 
Well, uh, you know, for months now I've been saying we're one magazine dump away from Civil War, and I guess um, Sunday night was a more than one magazine dump, that's for sure. Uh, full automatic, if you consider bump fire to be full automatic. It, in terms of the rate of fire, it certainly was. And firing into a uh, penned-up crowd, that's like a that's a mass-murdering sniper's dream. You know, a fenced-in venue, something like 20 acres of 22,000 people that can't get out. I mean, that's literally shooting fish in a barrel or um, sardines in a can. Nowhere to go, nowhere to run. Well, I... Go ahead. Oh, I'm I'm sorry, Mr. Bracken. John, John Robertson sitting in for Doug yeah. Hagman, uh, who is uh, investigating vis a vis the Northeast Intelligence Network, uh, the tragedy in Las Vegas. Uh, but you and I have communicated together quite a bit through email. I produced the show, and right. I, I thought we would just jump right in the deep end, and we can sort of we can sort of disseminate the Vegas issue, and and we can go other places too if you like, but. But let's just uh, remind our listeners and viewers right here and right now that your uh, trilogy of books, uh, Enemies, Foreign and Domestic, there's three books, folks. It's Enemies, Foreign and Domestic. Then there's Enemies, Foreign and Enemies, Domestic. I've read all three books. I read them this past summer as I became acquainted with our guest, Matt Bracken. Matt, it, it's it's frightening and it's uncanny, and I've been dying to ask you this for three or four days now. The first chapter of the first book, which I believe is Enemies Foreign and Domestic, um, right. the, the one with the uh, the Gadsden flag uh, motif. Right. The yellow cover. Yes, sir. You you nailed it. I mean, I, I don't want to give away. I don't want to give away too much of the book, uh, except to say that our previous hour guest was James Wesley Rawls. There are no two finer writers of of preparedness. Uh, 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 government overreach, dystopic fiction—what we sometimes call faction—than James Wesley Rawls and our, our our three guests, Matt Bracken. Matt, you nailed it. I, I mean, chapter one of Enemies Foreign and Domestic. We've got a mind-controlled sniper in a partially built building, uh, uh, creating a horrible mass casualty event at a football game. Uh, Matt, when exactly did you write that, and what inspired you to do so? Well, I wrote it, um, actually I wrote it before 9-11-2001, but I, um, the 9-11 the happened while I was writing it, so I was able to um, update it with, you know, instead of just ATF, it became Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. So it was right there during that time period, but you know, going back before 9-11, uh, you know, to um, Waco and Ruby Ridge, I was watching the, the militarization of federal law enforcement and uh, when I was in SEAL Team, I had watched the, the uh, early stages of SEAL Team 6 kind of go off the off the rails, going rogue a little bit under its first commanding officer, you know, where, the, where I, I saw that when you give people, um, you know, black credit cards, unaccountable uh, secret black fund accounts, it's a, it's a very strong temptation to kind of, uh, you know, go off the rails and deal to yourself, especially when you can sort of... Um, you know, you can instigate the entire process that will tend to make your own budget increase. You know, you can you can create the uh, you can create the scenario and sort of you know deal your own cards. And uh, that, that's I combined that with uh, what I've been watching for decades, with especially the ATF, but also FBI, 
and came up with, uh, you know, a couple just mid-level rogue ATF agents who after 9-11 were, were, um, you know, kind of jealous that the FBI's budget was going through the stratosphere after 9-11 and ATF was still plodding along, you know, chasing biker gangs and, you know, low-level, uh, scum like that, uh, for, for kind of piddling, um, uh, violations compared to what the ATFs were compared to the FBI's uh, mission and budget, you know, which was just flying through the roof. So they came up with the idea of of firing into a stadium, you know, which creates a, a panic stampede. So in in the novel, only 90 shots are fired into the stadium on opening day of the football season, but uh, over a thousand die in the in the subsequent panic stampede. You know, falling off the upper decks and getting jammed up in tunnels, things like that, which we saw kind of saw parallels to that. They haven't given the figures out in Las Vegas, but apparently there was quite a bit of um, stampeding and crushing. I don't know how many of the wounded were actually crushed rather than shot, but I, I suspect it's very significant. But it, it's they're all casualties. I mean, you know, panic is legit. I mean, panic is human dynamics. But um, yeah, I, I wrote that in uh, you know circa 2001, 2002. And my purpose with the novel was to try to get people to look beyond the, uh, the, the overt narrative that will be pushed in the liberal mainstream media. In Enemies Foreign and Domestic, the overt narrative is, you know, right-wing militia kook uh, with a beef against the federal government, shoots into a stadium. He's killed by the SWAT team at the site where the sniper rifle is found. He didn't actually pull the trigger. He's out of it, too out of it. But... Uh, you know, the ATF guys then can go back and uh, they, they create their own unit, the special training unit, a kind of a black ops uh, ATF unit, which um, is given a mandate to go after these right-wing militia kooks by hook or by crook. And I don't want to give away too much of the novel, but about the first quarter of all of my novels are on my website, enemiesfarnanddomestic.com. So anybody who's interested, uh, the stadium massacre literally happens on page one of enemies foreign and domestic. And after that novel, just staying in the theme of, you know, out of control federal law enforcement, we actually did see Operation Fast and Furious, which was literally a, an, an intentional mass murder scheme, except that it was conducted at a much higher level than a couple mid-level ATF bureaucrats. You know, Fast and Furious was operated uh, right out of um, uh, FBI headquarters in, in Washington headquarters. We know that because it wasn't just ATF agents in, in uh, Phoenix. Uh, it was it was ATF and FBI from you know from Florida to California doing this operation. And at the same time, uh, both Eric Holder, the then the, the then Attorney General and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, were both uh, constantly while Fast and Furious was in operation, but before it was disclosed after the death of of uh, Agent Terry, they were on every uh, TV show saying that 90% of the guns found at crime scenes in Mexico came from American gun stores. So they were all in on this false narrative. You know, before Benghazi, Hillary was up to her eyeballs in the false narrative that we need to get control of so-called assault rifles in the United States and the out-of-control gun stores and gun shows. Because all of these guns, 90% of the murder scenes in Mexico involved American guns. It was a total lie. But they were literally sending the guns into Mexico by the, by the car and truck load with no plan to track them. 
not telling federal law enforcement or the federal or the Mexican government. I mean, excuse me, the Mexican federal law enforcement. Nobody in Mexico knew that this was happening. If it was a legit uh, controlled operation, the Mexicans would have been on the on the other side of it. There was no attempt to to in any way track these guns once they were out of uh, sight of the ATF agents. They were literally trying to flood Mexico with American guns so that they could say, look, these guns came from these southwestern gun stores. It blew up in their face, but it was contained because the lying liberal mainstream media was willing to go along with the cover-up. I mean, when you think about it, back in Watergate, nobody died. It was a third-rate burglary. Nixon was forced to resign because of, you know, possibly being involved in the cover-up of a, of a very low-level low crime that he knew nothing about at the time. Yet, under Fast and Furious, 300 to 500 Mexicans were killed, and that was the purpose of the operation. They were killed on purpose. So it's far, far uh, past the realm of fiction for anyone to say, Matt, you write, you know, crazy stuff that could never happen. Fast and Furious did happen. And that's why now, when we look at uh, what the events in Las Vegas, nobody should look at the surface narrative and just say, well, hey, the FBI says we don't know why he did it. They wouldn't lie to us. Yeah, they would. They lie to us all the time. The whole, the whole uh, uh, McCabe, Mueller, uh, uh, Comey, that, that whole thing is, there are, there are professional liars. You know, they are deep state swamp lawyers to the nth degree. They're up to their eyeballs in it. When they came out three hours after the shootings in Las Vegas and said, nope, no terrorism here, we can confirm there's no terrorism. Bodies were still on the ground and they knew for a fact it wasn't terrorism. Well, I guarantee you there's, there's no, there's no real estate probably on the planet outside of maybe the Pentagon and the White House that has more surveillance cameras, high-tech stuff, digital, all recorded. They can, re they can go back months. Every hallway, every stairwell, there's no voids in a, in a Las Vegas hotel casino. There are, no, there are no dead spaces. They can see right now who went up and down that hall for the days pre previous. And for the way that they're treating this, saying that they have no idea what the motive is, and but they'll be sure and tell us when they figure it out. I look at this as a limited hangout or a, or a slow roll. They know what the motive was. They know all about it. And I think that they're afraid that if they came out right now and said that it's either he was a Muslim convert or he was an Antifa, you know, hard left pro progressive, at, you know, like the guy possibly at the uh, anti-Trump rally in Reno on August 23rd, the guy wearing the pink NASA shirt. If they say that this guy is like the Scalise shooter, a hardcore lefty, you know, that his secret life was that he's a hardcore, progressive, you know, communist-leaning guy or a Muslim convert, that the country will go ballistic. Instead, what they're trying to do is is cement the false narrative that he's a white guy, that it's a racial thing. White men with a cache of guns, that's what the enemy is. You know, as if there's some, uh, you know, genetic DNA evil that we contain. That's the narrative that they're trying to lay down and let solidify then they'll drib and drab out what what they already know is the is the truth because you know we've seen for example the receipt that came out showing two meals delivered to the room that's only because somebody in the hotel staff you know went back and found the receipt and leaked it themselves 
you can only imagine that the uh, Las Vegas PD and the FBI have 10,000 times more information than that, including video of every single person going up and down that hallway second by second. And the reason that they're, you know, I, I can only imagine the reasons that they're not letting that information out, but none of the reasons look good to me. Our guest this hour, for those just joining us, is Matt Bracken. Uh, and Matt Bracken has been with us several times before. He's really considered a, a Hagman Report favorite uh, by everyone at Team Hagman as well as our audience. And uh, just to be clear, Matt Bracken was a U.S. Navy SEAL, and uh, and he did uh, do some work in Beirut and uh, and retired uh, from the U.S. Navy in the 1980s. And uh, again, I would be remiss having having a not only a Navy man but a U.S. Navy SEAL. Uh, on our program this evening without uh, discussing just momentarily, Matt, uh, the concept of false flags. Now, a lot of our listeners and viewers uh, have a fairly cursory understanding of what a false flag is. I think some people uh, might go back to the uh, German-Polish border thing at the beginning of World War II, and they kind of understand that maybe you put on some other uniforms. But in fact, if I'm not mistaken, and I will defer to you, sir, uh, false flag actually comes from, from naval warfare, does it not? Uh, it uh, originated with the idea of a man of war flying another nation's flag until such time as the enemy closes in enough to blast them. So I was yep. hoping that you could uh, just take it from there. Talk to us a little bit about false flags. Also, you use the term limited hangout and slow roll. We've got a great audience. They're intelligent, and they love to learn this kind of stuff. Matt? Well, first, I, I want to make a correction. I did not retire from the Navy. I was a junior officer in SEAL Team, and after Beirut, I was looking at, you know, the rest of my career as a staff officer, which didn't, at the time, didn't interest me. I just wanted to be, you know, in a platoon, an operator, a shooter. After that, I had other goals, uh, you know, mostly involving sailing and boats. Um, so I, I left the Navy after my obligated service as a junior officer in the 80s. Um, however, yeah, the, the, the limited, the, the slow roll and the limited hangout, it's a means of, of putting out damaging information. You, you, we're familiar with like the Friday afternoon data dump. You know, if you, if the, uh, you know, whether it's Clinton or whoever, when there's some damning amount of files that they, that they know they have to put out, they put it out on Friday afternoon going into a busy weekend, preferably a holiday weekend. That's when the FBI called Hillary in to, uh, uh, to do her testimony, I think it was over like the 4th of July weekend or something like that, and so that you can control the dissemination of damaging information so that nothing hits in a solid wave like a tsunami, just a series of little little ripples, you know, that can be dismissed. Um, but you know, the, as far as false flags, sure, that, that goes back to naval history. Um, also, you know, in, on the land also, I mean, you know, just to, to get within, within ambush range of an enemy to, uh, you know, pretend that you're something that you're not, in terms of of fomenting a civil war or an insurrection, you know the 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 um, side that really wants to start the war doesn't want to be seen in history as the aggressor. It's fairly rare for for, for example, you know, Japan to just attack Pearl Harbor on uh, you know on uh, Sunday morning. It's more it's more typical to do what the Germans did and and dress up in false flags so that they can they can spin out some false newsreels. In order to to portray themselves as the aggrieved and attacked party, which is now merely defending themselves, 
you know, the Soviets did it against, uh, you know, the Finns, uh, the, the Germans did it. It's very common. I, I, something that, uh, that Bill McIntosh down in, uh, uh, down in South America, in old South America hand, he, he pointed out to me something called the, um, Bogotazo, which was the beginning of the period called La Violencia in Colombia in 1948 when, uh, when a, a liberal, popular liberal presidential candidate was assassinated. It, what it looks like was a patsy, you know, some loser was put out being connected to the conservatives as his assassin, when it, in fact it was probably communists, including young Fidel Castro, who just happened to be in town. You know, they, a patsy is blamed for killing the popular liberal president. It set off a wave of violence that lasted a decade and basically continued until fairly recently in Colombia. And, and I mean serious bloodletting, uh, a low-level, simmering civil war that just wouldn't stop with assassinations, disappearances, something like the uh, like Argentina in the uh, 1970s is also kind of similar. But this is the type of, um, of a period that I think that we're going to be going into. And uh, the, the Scalise shooting and the Las Vegas uh, massacre, I think, are both indicators of the, the simmering hatred that the left has, that they've been... I think they've been, you could say they've been trying to goad the, the right into punching first or drawing first. You know, when the, when the black hat gunslinger is trying to, to shoot the sodbuster, you know, he'll insult him and try to get the sodbuster to draw first. Then it's a legal killing because, you know, you, you, you know, your mama wears army boots, that kind of thing. Spit on his, spit on his wife. <laughs> but in, in, but, but I mean, it's, it's a, a matter of, staying out of jail and staying out of the hangman's noose for the professional gunfighter. Well, for the left, they've been like that black hat gunfighter. They've been, you know, uh, spitting at us in, in, the, in the sense of, you know, Berkeley free speech being shut down, things like that, hoping and praying that there would be something like, like, for example, Charlottesville, only with greater casualties. I think they were trying to goad somebody in Charlottesville into doing either a, a magazine dump or a, a what we saw there, which was sort of a low-level vehicular ramming, which may or may not even have been an intentional, you know, pedestrian ramming. He actually hit a car, not like he didn't just plow through herds of uh, pedestrians. But that's what they're hoping for, so that they can say so the civil war, the civil unrest that began with these evil, white, right-winger, you know, deplorable, irredeemables clinging to their guns and their Bibles. They started it. Now we're just responding. Well, I, I think that uh, the Scalise shooter, Hodgkinson, he got tired of waiting. He, you know, he took a tip from the New York Times about the uh, the Republican softball practice and st- and went down there and camped out there at the YMCA and in his van until he finally got his shot. Luckily, he was, um, you know, had bad timing, bad training, and uh, some very heroic uh, police uh, uh, police uh, saved the unarmed Republican congressman. But in in Las Vegas, uh, it looks to me like Paddock, whether it was Islamic, which can't be ruled out. I'm not, I don't know. I have no evidence of that other than what ISIS is saying. But um, if it, if he turns out to be another, you know, for example, Bernie Sanders supporter volunteer like Hodgkinson was, that's going to look terrible for the left. And I think that's why they're trying to keep that kind of information uh, concealed and then dribble it out over time, hoping for other major events to happen in the meantime to kind of take our mind off of 
Las Vegas, you know, to avoid the tsunami of emotion. And but something like that, it, it seems to me that to be in the works. If I can, I just want to, I want to comment on what you said earlier. Um, as far as, I don't believe the, the authorities would be, well, I, I guess I, it's not that I don't believe. I just don't see the authorities being quick to cover up an ISIS inspired attack. But I do agree with you. Um, they would be willing to cover up a, a more uh, American, uh, party line political attack, a motivated attack. They would be well, willing to cover that up. I well, you know, there's, it's, it's very common for left-wing socialists to convert to Islam. Mm-hmm. Carlos the Jackal being, you know, example numero uno. Uh, it's, it's very common, especially for men. A socialist man believes in you know, a communist, a male communist. He believes in a, in a totalitarian or authoritarian system where you know, uh, human decency has nothing to do with it, where you are authorized to force communism on anybody by any means. The ends justify the means. So it's very easy for them to step over to Islam. I think that they would cover up if it was ISIS. I do. Okay. Um, and it's especially if he came from a progressive left-wing background and then converted. That would be the worst-case scenario. That would that would put him in both camps. That would that would be the uh, the Venn diagram, you know, the two the the two intersecting circles, left and Islam, put together. That would be total worst case for them. So I don't rule it out. And, but you know, that when the, if you look at the timeline, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, I don't believe in a fourth floor window that they somehow ma- magically fixed the window. I think all the shooting was done from those two windows, but the shooting was over in ten minutes. What happened between the 10 minutes and the shooting's over and the scene is declared uh, secured, we have no idea who was in and out of that room in the meantime. You know, by the time the Las Vegas, if, if this was a, uh, you know, a, a suspense movie, by the time the Las Vegas PD SWAT was cleared to go in there, cleared by whom, you know, almost an hour later, that scene could have been sanitized. I mean, not saying that this happened, but if it was a, if I'm a, I'm a novelist, right? If this is a, a thriller, then there would be time to drag bodies in, drag bodies out, put weapons down, take weapons out, take out the uh, ISIS flag, for example, or put an ISIS flag in. The timing of it is just, you know, it leads me to wonder why did it take so long from the last shot to breaching that door? They, they claim, and this is a lame claim, they claim they methodically went down the hall, knocking on each door, making sure all the civilians were healthy, before the breaching team actually went and blew down the door. Personally, I don't believe that. And remember, if this is a suite or and or connected rooms, you know, with a, an opening door in the middle, it's possible that there were more than one door. So... You know, which door are they talking about blowing down with explosives? What about the other door? That's why the video, I, I expect what they're going to, they're going to say that the, uh, you know, that the surveillance cameras of the, of the casino had a mysterious lapse. Yep, they malfunctioned. You know, there, yeah, there was some mysterious malfunction and the, and that none of the, the video is readable. They'll, they'll find it in the evidence room in the FBI uh, headquarters in a hundred years underneath of the uh, steel door from the front of Mount Carmel, you know, the Waco door with the bullets going in, not out, <laughs> which they literally lost. You know, remember, Mount Carmel burned, okay? So there wasn't a lot left except for some melted weapons and mel- melted metal. 
but the steel doors were found. And some, were, and some melted Americans, Matt. But go ahead. Right, and melted Americans, including a lot of children. But there are pictures of the doors taken out of the ashes, put on a truck. They were lost somewhere between uh, Waco and Washington. And I suspect they were probably pitched off a bridge into the Mississippi River, if you ask me. But yeah, I have no, I have no confidence in the FBI anymore. They're, they're, uh, the subtext of, on their badges used to say fidelity, bravery, and integrity. And now I think that it just stands for faking bogus investigations. And I think that the senior levels of FBI at headquarters, all they care about is political correctness, paycheck, and pension. And I, I consider them to have no more honor. The men at the headquarters of FBI, no more honor than Stasi agents in East Germany. No more honor than that. And I wouldn't trust them as far as, as I could throw the uh, J. Edgar Hoover building. Yeah, and you know, you, you mentioned something about what's taken so long for them to release uh, these different things from the suicide note to the security tapes of you know who came and went from his room in the days leading up to it. And what's interesting about that receipt release that you mentioned for the room service is that it was issued on the 27th, a day before the Las Vegas Sheriff's Department even said he checked into the hotel room. So now right. we have, you know, even a longer stay uh, that we know for sure he was there a day earlier and already checked into his room a day before they said he checked in. And they also, uh, I think it was Tuesday, threw up footage of him in a casino falling in 2011. They had that queued up ready to go, but still no right. footage of, of anything that happened if, over this weekend. If Stephen Paddock had ever in his life belonged to a shooting club, the NRA, the Tea Party, or anything like that, we would have already seen a thousand hours of video of him at every Tea Party rally he ever attended. Mm -hmm. But if he was at the Reno anti-Trump rally on August 23rd, and it's a hell of a coincidence, the guy is a dead ringer for him as far as I'm concerned, and he's in the company of a woman who's a dead ringer uh, for Mary Lou. So, you know, I'm just saying, you know, one, one, one seems like a coincidence, but two coincidences lining up like that's a little too astronomical for me. And Mary Lou's ex-husband, who is, uh, also has the name Danley, is an uber Gary. progressive. Yeah, he's, he is, as far as I'm concerned, he's a, a communist subversive. I would invite people to read my short story called, uh, Professor Raoul X. You know, there are people who, who um, their their niche in life is weaponizing psychotics. You know when they when they meet a psychotic like a for example a James Earl Ray. That's where I derived the name Raoul for the uh, Professor Raoul, Raoul X piece. Uh, James Earl Ray, who is a you know a hillbilly kind of loser that I do believe he pulled the trigger and killed Martin Luther King. But I don't believe that he got himself to Canada and to Europe by himself. This is a guy who'd never traveled probably outside of, you know, the South in his life. And here he is, you know, getting himself into Canada and then over to Europe. I mean, it just doesn't match. So I, I think that there are people who will, who, who will weaponize, for example, a Hodgkinson. You know, I wonder if Hodgkinson had any nudges. Even, even the guy in Charlottesville, uh, I wonder if he had, you know, who was nudging him. There's been some very interesting investigative uh, video video journalism out of the Charlottesville incident, following his Dodge Charger around and looking at the street where the actual ramming later took place. It's very curious the the the, the forensic analysis of that Charlottesville uh, uh, car 
car car ramming is extremely curious. There are a lot of, you know, grassy knoll man with the umbrella kind of things going on in Charlottesville that make you wonder. But yeah, that that's the, and this is all going sort of integral with false flags and another term that you have to know, which is a cutout. You're never, ever, ever going to find a memorandum, you know, signed Eric Holder or Hillary Clinton, you know, yes, let's lie about Benghazi. Yes, let's dump Mexico, uh, uh, firearms into Mexico and blame it on the Second Amendment. These guys are very clever. They meet on the tarmac in a Gulf Stream, and they don't usually get caught at it. It's it's meat space face to face, and the and you know there are no notes taken, no memoranda. So Grand, grandkids in golf, Matt. Just just grandbabies right. in golf. But they but there's never going to be an FBI agent arrested at the scene of any of these things moving evidence. It'll be a contractor who was hired by another contractor, and if the guy's ever ever arrested, the first thing out will be his psychiatric uh, history and his you know being dishonorably discharged from the military. They'll have that ready to go to discredit him. But there'll never be, you know, a CIA or FBI active agent, you know, or, or officer that's ever, you know, getting dirty in this stuff. It'll be, it'll be, uh, uh, somebody who maybe had an affiliation as a contract officer years ago that they'll deny. But, um, yeah, that I, I think that Las Vegas is highly suspicious, but I, I encourage people don't go for the stupid stuff. This is where, and I explain, and I really do get into this in my novels. I encourage people to read them. There's something everybody's familiar with called plausible deniability. Well, maybe it was, you know, something from left field that nobody's thought about. But there's another concept I use called probable culpability. You know, if you get an ex-militia guy up in a building holding an SKS rifle with a scope on it outside of the stadium, well, sure, the media is not going to look into it deeply. Uh, but I, 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 in this case of Las Vegas, there's the broken windows. As far as I'm concerned, all the shots came from there. Other shots are echoes. It's very common to have false reports. Remember the white man in the white van when the uh, Muhammad and Malvo snipings were going on. You know, an, an erroneous radio report can get repeated and take on a life of its own and then be the subject of, of either conspiracies or false police, you know, incorrect police investigations investigations but in in the case of of uh, Las Vegas please folks don't be imagining you know huge teams of people it's not necessary all the shooting was done from that room one guy can absolutely bring 20 25 weapons up to a room if anybody's been in a big high rise hotel they have the luggage carts you could stick you know six weapons cases or or igloo coolers or anything else you want in those things and haul them up to your room. It's no problem. The, the, the real thing is, where are the videos? <laughs> this is Las Vegas. This is not some off-strip uh, third tier. This is the Mandalay. Every hotel hallway and stairwell is filmed 24-7, and they've got it. So they know who was in and who was out of that room. And, and if the fact that they're not releasing any of this, the fact that for the in terms of the slow roll, the fact that they only used the uh, the drunken picture of, of Stephen Paddock where he's like leaning over with his eyes closed mm-hmm. for like the first three or four days, this is deliberate. You know, they, they didn't even, somebody had to find like a, a somewhere a, his driver's license finally yeah. to get a picture of him with his eyes open for comparison purposes. 
you know, there, I don't care how low profile he was on social media. Nobody that's a gambler in Las Vegas wouldn't have tons of pictures of him up, not to mention all the guns that he's bought. And if, and when people say, well, you know, he's been a gun nut for years. Well, in the first 63 years of his life, I think he bought maybe less than 10 guns. Because the total number that they're talking about is like in the low 40s. But in the last year of his life, since October of 2016, he bought 33 guns. And something else important that I, um, that I, I've only seen a little bit. Sometimes these nuggets come out and you gotta grab these nuggets because you won't hear them often. The reason he was able to get that room was he didn't, and from in a, in a venue for a concert, which was sold out for months and months, he bought it from Airbnb. So he, remember, he doesn't care about the cost. He's like the guy that will buy a last-minute Super Bowl ticket and get it because he's willing to pay high dollar. So if you just went to the hotel two weeks before this concert and said, I want these rooms facing that concert, you may or may not get them. And you might have a hard time convincing them that you need to switch rooms until you get the right room. But if you're buying basically at auction on Airbnb, you can get the one over Lollapalooza, you can get the one, I think he was looking at uh, some, a hotel near uh, uh, Fenway Park. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think maybe, I, I'm not sure if he even went to Lollapalooza, but that's like, you know, uh, fringe counterculture kind of people. When he found the country uh, Highway 91 thing with all these, you know, deplorable, Bible-toting, Trump-voting uh, you know, irredeemable conservatives. I think that's when he, he said, this is the one that's going to happen. And he was there for like two other days of the concert. So he was waiting for the last night. I'm not sure why. Somebody pointed out, and remember, we're dealing with somebody who probably has severe psychotic issues. Somebody did point out that if you, if you put, and I'm in no way a numerologist, all right, but we're dealing with a psychotic. You know, why pick October 1 instead of uh, September 30th? And it, you can get the, the it's like nine one, and then what's the other one? Somebody showed me this, but you can get like a nine one one out of that date, but not out of a September date. But um, yeah, it's it's we're we're dealing we're digging deep into a, a very psychotic person. Obviously, we were talking about him, you know, screaming at night. Uh, Mary Lou Danley, possibly she's a connection back to Gary Danley. In the Daily Mail today, it said that he was obsessed with Gary Danley recently. I don't know what that means. Was was Gary Dean Danley priming him up? Now, I saw a very fascinating uh, minute and a half video, street video from Berkeley from about a week ago, where some Latina girls are, are goading a black-masked, skinny, tall, white Antifa, saying, you're just a poser. You're just here for, you know, cosplay. If you're really an ally, you've got to go punch a Nazi right now and get arrested. So there's this whole white racial privilege thing, which they're trying to put on us conservatives. But in this racially charged atmosphere, the intersectional allies of color are using white guilt about white privilege among the the white Antifas to goad them. You need to prove you're a real ally. Stop talking and get out and do something. 
Well, I think that Hodgkinson did at the at the Republican uh, baseball practice, and it's possible that Stephen uh, Paddock did at the at the uh, uh, country music festival. You know, prove that you're the man. And I think looking at Stephen Paddock, not that I know much about him, only what's in the media. When I think of motives for somebody who's obviously very smart, you know, you, you don't become a private plane pilot if you're not a thorough, organized planner. You know, this is not your typical marginal uh, side, you know, the outcast of life misfit. This is a guy who somehow accumulated real estate holdings in four or five states, including rental properties, uh, was in control enough that he could be a very careful gambler in Las Vegas. Don't know if he was up or down over the course of the last few years, but he obviously didn't have the kind of problem where he, you know, spun out and just lost all of his wealth. You know, I don't know if he was a net loser or a net winner, but he didn't have such a lack of control like you would expect of somebody out of control who would have just gambled until he lost his entire fortune. Very careful man. Several houses, even in Nevada, uh, including in Reno, the site of that, that rally. So there's a, there's a lot going on with this guy, and I wonder if um, somebody like a Gary Danley, not saying him necessarily, I sure hope that if there are any honorable FBI agents, fidelity, bravery, integrity guys, remember, not paycheck, pension, and PC, if there are any FBI agents like that anymore, and I hope there are, I have known some in the past, I would hope that they are looking into this in order to expose it and not bury it and cover it up, which I suspect that they might be doing. It's very worrisome to me that, that for example, you know, the, the uh, Bannons and Flynn's were literally pushed out of the White House to be replaced by, you know, guys like McMaster, real establishment swamp creatures. The um, before Obama, they were teaching real Islamic history and information. During Obama, they brought Council of American Islamic Relations in to to basically purge all of that out of FBI training and federal law enforcement training. Well, it's still not back. So we've still got these deep state swamp federal law enforcement administrators that are more interested in covering up than in exposing. So I, I have very little faith that the federal law enforcement is going to be honest. And I and when I when we do see these dog and pony show uh, interviews, the um, pressers like last night in Las Vegas, you almost wonder. Uh, I'm, I'm almost looking at the local police like they're going to be blinking out torture, you know, like uh, hmm. uh, Vietnam yeah. POWs, <laughs> like saying things like, "Okay, now they're letting me have the microphone. They've vetted my script, but I am going to mention things like." Like uh, uh, possible radicalization, that's like a big blinking out torture. There's probably an FBI handler behind him saying, cut, cut, take his mic. <laughs> this is right out of the USSR. I mean, I can't believe this is America. And even in the era of Trump, you can, it shows how he's the president, but the deep state security apparatus just rolls on like he, like it doesn't even matter. Uh, Matt, I want to ask you if you picked up on, and apparently you have, there, there seems to be some tension between the FBI and the Las Vegas Sheriff's Department. Um, do you think that the FBI is literally telling the Las Vegas Sheriff's Department, you know, you can't release this, you can't say this, just as you described? Sure. Absolutely. National security. I think that it's very likely. It makes no sense to me. It sounds like 
a couple of men in black in a room said, now how are we going to explain the, the hour it took to breach the door? You know, well, how about this? Nah, it's ridiculous. Nah, they'll never buy that. How about we went door to door and took five minutes on each door going down the hall. Mr. Smith, are you okay? Would you like to get your pet out of the room? Uh, yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't wash. It, with an active shooter, they don't know if he's alive or dead. They'd have demo on that door within five minutes after the security guard was shot. Max, probably two minutes. The security guard is shot. They know it's the room. The smoke alarm's going off, which, by the way, seems to be this very methodical planner. The only thing he, one of the only things he missed was that his amount of firing would set off the smoke detector, which if he had ear protection on or was just deafened from the shooting, he may not have even been aware or had been, he was, may have been too, uh, 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 his, his nerves and his senses too overwhelmed to um, absorb that, what it meant, or to try to just, you know, shoot out the smoke detector. But once it went off, it doesn't matter. They knew which room it was. The security guard goes there. You can hear the firing from both sides of the hall, up floor and down floor. Security guard gets shot, and then it's an hour before they breach the door, and they're saying, well, there was no shooting going on. Well, maybe the guy was, you know, shooting up heroin. Who knows? But he might be... Or maybe he ran out of all the loaded magazines he had, and he's busy jamming mags. Mm -hmm. you, you don't wait an hour when a guy just shot a couple thousand rounds out the window to see if he's ready to shoot another couple thousand rounds out the window. That Very true. missing time blows my mind. And when they looked at us in the face, at those pressers, like we're effing morons, well, we decided to be very cautious and go down the hallway door by door to make sure everybody was safe before we breached. That's crap. That's total crap. And they would have breached that door within minutes of the security guard getting shot just to stop him from maybe, or, or how do you know, considering how methodical this guy is, if you want breachers to not get in, apparently he brought in like a drill and a screw gun and screwed the door shut. How do you know he hasn't brought in a, a steel net, like a cargo net made of steel wire, and he's got it all screwed all the way around the door? You blow the door down, and all it does is fall against a big steel net. Now it's like, okay, who's got the bolt cutters to start cutting a steel net? You know, that which buys you another couple minutes if you're shooting out a window. You can't just predict that a guy that's gone to this trouble hasn't figured out a way to barricade the damn door. You know, he, he might have brought in uh, Kevlar panels in, in uh, pieces and, and screwed them with 100 screws across each door. You can't just depend on the breacher getting through and shooting the guy. And you can't just depend on the guy being dead unless they already knew because they're already watching video from inside the room you know, here's one of my suppositions. Now I'm being a novelist again, okay? I'm not saying this happened. If the guy's filming himself, why? He's filming himself because he thinks it's being sent out of the hotel to somebody else's computer, maybe his own, for a relay to be saved and relayed, if he is an ISIS guy, to relay it to ISIS for to the show-and-tell video. If he's just doing it because he wants to be the most famous uh, diabolically clever evil genius of all time it's so that it can be disseminated without the FBI being able to stop it 
to a dozen media outlets where he can be, you know, I was smarter than everybody. Take that, FBI. You know, remember his dad uh, mm-hmm. on the run for mm-hmm. 10 years from the FBI. Take that, FBI. I was smarter than all of you. Well, if he was had video inside of the room, I think he planned for it to be disseminated. If people were aware he was in the room, not saying that they were, they might have been they might have known he was dead because they're looking at the video. <laughs> right. Or maybe he wasn't dead. But the, the fact that's all conjecture. The fact remains it's a steaming pile of you know what to say that it took an hour from the security guard getting shot at the door in question for the breachers to be brought up. Who was holding the LVPD breachers back? You know they were raring to go. They weren't like being brought in from the other casinos, sobering up and finding their gear. Those guys are in a van or in a ready room. They're, they're, all they got to do is put on the hard plates and go. They would have been, and, and this is 10 minutes after, 10 minutes of shooting. You know they're suited up. They're just looking for where it's coming from. They're in the hotel, narrowing it down. Two minutes, five minutes maximum after the security guard is shot, that door is ready to be blown off its hinges. If that door is not being blown off its hinges, somebody held them back. That's, it seems to me. And I listened to the, to I listened to the, um, the police scanner audio, um, some condensed versions and, and some of the, the full, uh, two hours. And what it sounds like is that they did identify, it took them a little bit to identify the room. The security guard definitely helped, but that the Las Vegas Sheriff Department identified the room. They were pulled back and a, and a SWAT team was brought in and they're, um, while some of them, I mean, obviously they could have cleared some rooms out, but their first priority, as you said, is to get, uh, find out where the, the shooter is. They did that to, uh, to, to intercept and take him down. They're not going to be, I mean, they're going to have a team in place, uh, blowing those doors down as they're trying to get other people out from, you know, other areas of the hallway. They're, even if they don't get the other right. people out. Right. They're going to, remember, these are strong concrete buildings. It's not like if they breach this door, their shrapnel is going to hit Mrs. McGillicuddy mm-hmm. and her poodle down the hall. That's crap, okay? They're not worried about that. These walls are built like a, a vault. This is Las Vegas. You know, these are steel doors. These are fire doors. They're strong. So if, if it took an hour for them to get to the breacher on the door, I want to know who breached. Was it Las Vegas Police Department, or were those guys put on the leash? Whoa, stop. We got the urgent national security call from Washington or, you know, from uh, McCabe, who's still running. I think he's still running the FBI. I don't know. It, it, it's these swamp lawyers, these swamp creatures. I mean, he's, he was one of the first ones to come out and say, definitely not terrorism. How the heck do you know, mister? You know, unless you're maybe know something more about it than you're telling us. But if, if there is, uh, in the, somewhere in the stairwell, I think that he also, uh, bolted or nailed stairwell doors. Yeah. They actually came up the elevator. But I think that somewhere in the lobby or somewhere before the uh, the breaching team, I'll bet there was practically fist fights between Fed, HRT, uh, like FBI hostage rescue team. They also have like local, regional FBI, what they call, they used to call enhanced SWAT. So Las Vegas definitely has an FBI enhanced SWAT team. So there will be like a little bit of jurisdictional you know, rank pulling, you know, uh, pecker checking. Uh, we outrank you. We're ordering you to stand down, mister. 
And the Las Vegas guys are probably saying, we know what room it is. We're blowing that door down now. No, you're not. We have to be careful. We got, none of that adds up. The time delay just doesn't make sense. The guy could have been stunned. Let's say he, let's say he, uh, you know, had some moral qualms. He's in the corner in the fetal position, sucking his thumb. Then he decides, the hell with it. I'm going for the gusto. If they, they say they don't know that he shot himself until they get in the room, and, and remember, there's also a lot of other things that could have been happening in terms of the, the, the I would like to know really the coroner report about time of death, things like that, which can be established. I'll bet that's going to be very fuzzy also, very fuzzy coroner's report, because they can make it look like a, like a uh, suicide by sticking a pistol in the guy's mouth and shooting him after death for sure. But we don't know any of that. Or the guy might have been trying to surrender. No, no, sir, you're not surrendering. Bang, in the mouth. You know, while he's got his hands up. We won't, we, we may never know. Because I don't know yet, was it really LVPD that breached or was it them being held back while federal enhanced SWAT went in and sanitized the scene in order to not disturb the sheeples out there with the truth of what really happened? You know, and it, and it pisses me off in particular because for this whole almost a week now since Sunday, white men with guns are being portrayed as evil incarnate because there's no motive. He's just a white man with a, too many guns. Well, I'm a white man with some ARs. I was at a range yesterday with a friend shooting ARs. And, you know, it, it pisses me off to be tarred by the national media and all these, you know, uh, big websites and networks. White men with guns, they're the big problem in America. Well, what if it is actually a progressive lefty who's trying to become famous, you know, give some meaning to his life, and enhance the cause of, you know, world socialism by sliming the Second Amendment? You couldn't do a better thing. You look at it's like a twofer. You get to kill hundreds of, or you know, kill or shoot hundreds of your most hated, evil, Bible-thumping Christian Trump voters, and you get to backfist the Second Amendment out of the way, which is the biggest obstacle to the progressives forcing socialism on everybody. They know that eventually it comes down to socialism being a cram down, not an election, a cram down, you know, for our own good. But they can't do it while they've got that pesky Second Amendment in the way. So think about it. You get to shoot a bunch of your enemies, and then the Second Amendment is blamed. It's perfect. It's beautiful. If you're a lone shooter paddock that thinks of all these things, or if you are a Professor Raoul X, and I encourage people to read that, if you are a Professor Raoul X and you see in a Stephen Paddock the potential, Stephen, when are you going to quit talking about it? When are you going to do something? Your life has meant nothing. So you're a millionaire. You can't fly anymore. Your health is going to crap. You're all paranoid about bugs and germs. Why don't you do something and be an immortal You'll live forever. You'll be famous. You'll be the man that started the Civil War. So I would really encourage people to look deeply into the motives and the people that might have been instigating and encouraging this guy, if indeed that happened. We don't know that it happened. But I'm telling you, the timeline the timeline from the end of the shooting to the breaching stinks like a, a, a rotten I-don't-know-what yeah. in the punch bowl. And we want to thank, uh, again, we want to thank Bill McIntosh, from Ocaso Media uh, for arranging this interview. Matt, we only have a few minutes left. Just want to ask you this. The November 4th Antifa and leftist day of rage that is planned, uh, anything you see that is concerning you, 
Um, do you think that they will try to carry this plan out and cause disruptions and, and violence in different cities in America? I think anybody that's promoting it is hoping for mayhem, is hoping for like a little, uh, you know, helter-skelter, national helter-skelter. But it, but as well, especially after shooting the, a bunch of, you know, uh, conservative country music fans, I think what they're really hoping for is a magazine dump going the other way now. They're hoping for some, for some, you know, uh, veteran or right-winger, Tea Party-type NRA member to say, that's it. I'm getting revenge for Las Vegas, and I'm going to go to this Antifa rally, you know, with 10 magazines loaded, and I'm going to, you know, waste them the way they wasted my uh, country music brethren. I think that that's almost more of what they're hoping for. Again, it's the black hats that are trying to get the sod buster to draw first. So you could almost say that Las Vegas is like the ultimate instigation. You know, what's it going to take to get you conservatives to fight, you know, to take up arms? So that we can then have our civil, uh, you know, our, our civil disorder and and uh, you know, ban rallies, you know, uh, crack down on the internet, free speech, all these hate sites. They're instigating violence. So I think they're trying to get something to happen. And, and I encourage, you know, my conservative, libertarian, right-leaning brothers and sisters, don't go for this. You know, hold your fire, load more magazines, buy another case while you can, because. It's all about shaping the battle space. Let it be clear that it's these progressive lefties like uh, Hodgkinson and probably Paddock that are trying to start this kinetically. Don't go kinetic from our side. There will be plenty of time for kinetic if and when civil war is truly in swing. But don't let it come from our side. Amen. Amen. Our guest has been Matt Bracken, enemiesforeignanddomestic.com. Again, Oh. I have a, I do have a new book. This oh, is, uh, I think, my best means. novel. Yes. Yeah, I think this is my best book, um, Red Cliffs of Zerhoon. And uh, it's also on Kindle. It's the, the Kindle covers on the back of the printed book. But I, it has 4.9-star Amazon reviews. I think it's my best writing. I, all of my books, I think, have got great stories, but I think I'm a better novelist, a better writer now than I was with Enemies Foreign and Domestic. But well, all Matt, my books, uh, I think, are great, but I'll tell you what. I am going to read uh, Red Cliffs of Zarhoon. Uh, I do understand there's a child trafficking component uh, to it, and that is That's certainly right. certainly salient, certainly germane to what we do That's every right. day here at the Hagman That's Report. Right. And Absolutely. you know, you you said it, sir. It is all about shaping the battle space. And our our three guests tonight on the Hagman Report, Mr. Matt Bracken, has helped each of us do exactly that: shape the battle space. Don't by the BS. Don't draw first. Matt Bracken, God bless you, sir. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Well, that will do it for us tonight here at the Hagman Report. I want to remind everybody again out there, don't forget of the two new shows that we have, the Doug Hagman Show, 9 to 10 a.m., and the Hagman Daily Show, 2 to 3 p.m. on Global Star Radio Channel 3, Blog Talk Radio Live and Archive on the podcasting apps, as well as the access to it on HagmanReport.com and don't forget to bookmark HagmanReport.com as we update it daily with news from uh, curated content to original authors and um, it's a a great source for information. John, I want to thank you for filling in for my dad again and tomorrow night we have Dr. Ted Brewer who's going to join us and I'm not sure if he'll be back for that. He says he will but uh, we don't know. We'll see what happens, but it's been uh, fun doing the show with you as we do the daily show every day, and we've had a lot of great guests, so thank you. 
Well, it's it's been my pleasure. It's been my honor, as always, to sit in the big chair. Uh, prayers for Doug Hagman as he wades through this investigation in the post-Las Vegas tragedy. Uh, Joe Hagman, thank you so much, and God bless each and every one of you. Yeah, and we'll be uh, we'll be back tomorrow, and uh, you know we're going to continue to keep our eye on a number of issues, including uh, Las Vegas. I do suspect between my dad and others out there doing some legwork that something uh, something will come out. I hear that there might be another woman in custody or associated with this. Not sure yet, but we'll see, folks. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great night, and God bless.